Hey guys, it's Aiden from Kino Inferno, the podcast you're listening to, so you probably know that. Um, before we get into our long-awaited Batman special, uh, we thought it was worth doing another little... Um, well, I say another, we've only done one previously for Ivan Reitman, but uh, we thought it was worth doing a little shout-out to... Uh, Somebody famous who passed away a couple of weeks ago, uh, comic book artist Neil Adams, who um, we'd like to take the time to dedicate this episode to. Uh, obviously, if there are any other comic book nerds in the audience, you'll know Neil Adams is uh, primarily remembered among Bat fans for his uh, run uh, as an artist in the 70s with writer Dennis O'Neill, which basically reinvented the character, uh, introduced a lot of elements that are you know, super influential now. Uh, he's generally considered to be one of the best artists, uh, or if not the best artist to ever work on the Caped Crusaders adventures. Um, yeah, I mean, that that run is legendary. I mean, uh, it's the run where you get uh, the introduction of, like, Ra's al Ghul and Talia al Ghul, and um, it's a really cool little uh, influential few years of Batman's history. Uh, they kind of take him away from the sort of comics code kidified batman and kind of start pushing him back towards the kind of pulpier uh more mysterious character that he was before they also introduce a lot of interesting elements like uh what grant morrison likes to refer to as shirtless love god batman where suddenly he's uh he's always appearing with his uh, big buff hairy chest out and uh, he's always kind of going on bondian globe-trotting adventures so um I mean, that's just a... Look, read, read the Adams O'Neill run, it's great. And it has some of the best art to ever be in a popular comic book, courtesy of Mr. Adams. Uh, the other thing that I'd like to shout out um, for Adams uh, in particular is his dedication to creators' rights. If you know anything about comic books, you'll know that the comic book industry in general and the big two, uh, DC and Marvel in particular, are not necessarily the best when it comes to giving creators their dues. And uh, Neil Adams was a lifelong campaign of creators' rights, in fact. And he campaigned for a long time to bring about changes um, to the sort of general business practices of the comic industry. And was successful in a lot of ways. Um, most notably, or the big headline thing that he uh, was partially responsible for, set into motion, was um, Joe Siegel and Jerry Schuster, the creators of Superman, finally getting paid their dues, finally uh, their estates at any rate getting... Uh, getting the money they deserved so all in all a great guy a magnificent artist and someone who you know seems like our kind of dude a solid cool dude so yeah this episode is uh dedicated to him and his legacy Welcome back to Kino Inferno, your favourite movie podcast. It's getting very sexy in here, what's going on? I'm Aiden. Mm, and I'm Mark. Oh. <laughs> and we're here to talk today about uh, Batman. If we sound a little bit unhinged, listeners, it's because 
this episode has been would you say cursed i would definitely say cursed yeah i'm cursed i'm very apprehensive to keep recording at this point yeah me too um as we you know if you're on the facebook page we've we've actually recorded this episode once before um but unfortunately as we were recording the joker interrupted the broadcast um to do terrorism so we love that joker so we've had to re-record um so if we sound a little bit like we're sick of hearing the word batman um (laughs) then we are because full disclosure we had some technical issues when we were recording the first one anyway so on the day we re-recorded several segments and i just want to say i never in a million years ever thought that i would get tired of saying batman but here we are so yes let's do this so it's probably worth jumping into our our relationship with batman i would say i think that's probably the best way to sort of kick this off so aiden please tell me about your relationship with the bat like do you love the bat i assume you love the bat i know you love the bat the batty um (laughs) you do love the batty you batty man can I say well, that? Yeah, well, I, I can say that. I don't know. It seems... <laughs> I don't know. We shouldn't. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> well, as you know from the last episode, the one the last time we tried to record this episode, um, I... Uh, yeah, I'm partial to... Um, partial to a bit of Batty. Um, yeah, no, I'm a big fan of the Batman. Uh, multiple incarnations uh, across the years, obviously. Um I think my kind of earliest um, abiding memory of the Batman, probably uh, same as yourself, really, is the 90s cartoon series, Batman, the animated series. Yes. uh, Now rightfully regarded as a classic. And I would say probably the best adaptation ever, if not the best version of Batman. I Um, think I would agree with you. I think I would say, to my mind at least, I think it is the most definitive adaptation of batman and whenever i think of anything batman related it's typically the animated series that springs to mind like their version of characters and such like that's very much ingrained in my brain yeah and um you know i I had all the movies we're going to talk to uh talk about today on vhs the burton uh schumacher movies and for the Um, kids amongst us vhs were these really shit quality tapes that you had of movies Yes, they were like cassette tapes, for, for, but you don't know what cassette... Okay. Um, they were these rectangular objects which contained reels of videotape that would play from the left to the right. And when placed into a VHS player, would convert that into a televisual image that you could watch. They would get gradually more distressed over time <laughs> if you watched the video fairly frequently. And as a kid, it was like magic. But I don't know if you've watched a VHS in recent years. A couple of years ago, uh, I, I ended up watching something. I think it was Power Rangers. I think it was the Power Rangers movie I saw on VHS mm. for some unknown reason. Probably drugs. We ended up watching the first Power Rangers movie on a VHS. And... Mm. I looked at it, and my initial response was, how the fuck did we used to watch these? Because, yes, I mean, admittedly, this tape's probably aged, but my god, the quality is just bad. It's so, yeah, so bad. Yeah, it'd be like, well, lower than standard definition on a DVD. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Generally pan and scan, so not even in the right <laughs> format most of the time. <laughs> just terrible, terrible. But yeah. a source of great joy and nostalgia for me is VHS tapes. Yeah, you have to fast forward through the adverts. Could always be commercials at the start of the VHS. 
I always remember as well the first time we got a DVD in my house. We got a DVD player and uh, we got the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. That was the first DVD I ever owned. And I remember being amazed by when you hit pause on the DVD, the image was clear. Which is was mind-blowing to me. Because for, for Generation Z listeners, when you pause a VHS... It, the image kind of goes a bit black and white from what I remember. It just kind yeah, of it's very distorted. Yeah, these the three lines would come up on the on the screen like as it, as it just held the tape in place. And it was really shit if you wanted to pause for a specific moment to see something yeah. because you weren't guaranteed to see it. Yeah, it was potluck. But enough about relics of the past. Um, you know, there's a big movement now for collecting VHSs in there the same way is, that people collected films. And VHSs are still released. Um, I know that for a fact because, uh, of course, this was advertised to me. Uh, but a company just re-released the sequels to Sleepaway Camp on VHS. <laughs> nice, nice. And the I think A twenty four have released a few VHSs, some of their horror movies. I believe they have. Yeah, I mean, I know the reason. The only reason why the Sleepaway Camp movies were re-released on VHS is because the original gore footage for the third movie um, is only available in VHS format. So right. they just released a VHS so it could finally be released uncut. And as you can imagine, that is now worth a fair bit of money. Something that only Mark cares about. I Sleepaway Camp being released on VHS. <laughs> I love those movies, what can I say? But not as much as I love Batman, because yes. I fucking love Batman. So, yeah, we're both in the same boat here. We're talking about our relationship to Batman. Uh, long storied obsession um uh i mean i don't know how deep you go into comics and stuff uh, not huge i mean you know me i'm not really a huge comic book guy but if you were to look at my bookshelf in my house um which i don't think you can see because me and aiden can see each other right now um there is a, an entire shelf which is just well, I say just Batman comics. It's like 90% Batman comics and a couple of Buffy comics and that's pretty much all i own. And several issues of FHM. Uh, yeah, and nuts as well, unloaded. You know, I've, I've got a real thing for collecting lads mags of the early 2000s. I feel like one day they might be worth something. FHM's still going, I think. Is nuts that... and Zoo have gone by the Nuts and Zoo side. are confined to the past where they belong. Although I'll both publications did, did give Crank High Voltage five stars from what I gather. So Yeah, well, as we know. One thing I did see in a news agent that I wasn't expecting, uh, talk about a blast from the past, an issue of Front magazine. Oh, they still make that? I, I guess they do, unless this person just had back issues that they were putting on the, on the aisles. I didn't even know newsagents still existed. Yeah, well, you, you forget. You might be living your city slicker lifestyle <laughs> down there down there on the mean streets of Lincoln. Ooh, a gaming I work in a gaming bar. Ooh. I'm out, I'm out here keeping it real. Yeah, you just live in the sticks, mate. <laughs> That's all that is. <laughs> Little country bumpkin you are, mate. Alright. Road's blocked again. Tractor's broken down. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, no, so... We both, so, um, we both love the Bat. We, we both do love the Bat. Yes. I mean, I've loved Batman since I was a kid, and I, I like a lot of the comics, and I, I know you're much more into that kind of thing than what I am. Yeah, I'm a true fan. But we must address <laughs> the elephant in the room. Not that, big... I'm not even touching that true fan bullshit. Um, <laughs> we, we, we must address the elephant in the room, which is the reason why we are doing an Aiden and Mark versus episode, because there's always a reason. Because we yes. did the Ghostbusters one, because Afterlife came out, 
We did the Scream one because of Five Cream. We did the Wallace and Gromit one because... Because uh, they announced they're making a new Wallace and Gromit film at some point in the future. So we're just riding that press high. Because we have very little inspiration otherwise. Um, So... The reason why we're doing this Aiden and Mark versus Batman episode is because just recently Matt Reeves released The Batman, which is the latest Batman cinematic mm. incarnation. Matt Reeves of Cloverfield and Let Me In and the Apes the, movies. Two of the Apes movies. He didn't do the first one. He did two Dawn of the movies, and yeah, War, yeah. which are the two better ones, admittedly. Yeah, I like Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Rise of the Planet of the Apes kind of feels like a first act stretched out across a feature length movie yeah i enjoy it because i only recently watched the three apes movies um for the first time and the first one is like is a good watch but tonally it is all over the place like that movie doesn't really know what it wants to be um still a good time i enjoyed it but dawn is fantastic like that's genuinely a really great little movie yeah dawn Um, is the best one and and war is is good. good but it very much exists in the shadow of dawn i think yeah yeah but this isn't the planet of the apes podcast this is the Bateman podcast. We are never so, doing an Aiden and Mark versus Planet of the Apes. Do you know how many of those fucking films there are? <laughs> we'll do all of them, all in one episode, which will oh, be seven please, hours long. Please, the last time we did this fucking Batman episode was long enough. <laughs> it was an ordeal, listeners. It, was. Um, it really was. But we've not had any tech breakdowns yet, so no, well, fingers crossed. Well, let's see how that goes. Um, yes, so uh, twenty twenty two saw the, which is this year saw yep. the release of the Batman, Warner Bros. latest attempt to reinvigorate the franchise after the stinky poo poo mess that Zack Snyder left all over the place, all over Christopher Nolan's crackhead energy that he just shot mm. all everywhere with the Dark Knight Returns. Dark Knight Returns. Dark Knight Dark Rises. Night. That was it. Yeah, Dark Knight Rises is uh, an that excellent was, film. Returns, Returns was the good we... one. Rises wasn't. Dark Knight Rises, which we all agree was an excellent film. It is a Moving crackhead on. movie, and I will not hear any different. Mm, I'm crashing this plane. <laughs> no survivors. That's a bad thing. Now, plane, I'm sorry. I feel like we shouldn't get too bogged down in discussing this because we do have four films to talk about. But yes, um, we should. But we've got, uh, and, and also we might because obviously this is Aiden Mark versus Batman, but it's not the complete Aiden and Mark versus Batman no. yet. Because we're just doing the uh, the four movies from the late 80s and through to the 90s. So the original um, glut of Batman movies. Yeah, and unfortunately for now we're not going to be talking about the Adam West Batman. No. We may cover that at a later date. Um, the movie that is, we're not going to go through the whole show. Because brilliant though it is, there's a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, unless you guys want to do some kind of watch along with us, but I don't see that happening. Hey. <laughs> Unless we start a Patreon, in which case, yeah, if you pay we us, may do that. we'll watch Batman with you. That's kind but of listen, how it works. If you, so, if you want us to talk endlessly about the Adam West Batman, yeah, get your friends listening so we can get enough listeners to start a Patreon, please. Yeah, that's all you got to do. If you want to watch Batman with us, fucking pull your finger out. Get your head out of your ass. Just no, I'm only joking. Out, Unless... you lazy bastards. Right, listen, anyway. we're talking about anything other than Batman because we're so fed up of having to record this episode. <laughs> yes, so. Let's. So, Mark, what were your feelings on The Batman from 2022, um, starring Robert Pattinson? Ah, bats, yeah. The um, Batman. No, I, I quite liked it. Um, it's very long. That's the main thing I'll say about it. It's 
far too long. It does not need to be almost three hours long, and you could definitely cut some stuff out of it, and I feel like the film wouldn't suffer too much. But on the whole, I quite liked it. I thought, for the most part, the sort of leaning slightly more into sort of the gothic grim atmosphere was good again. I thought Robert Pattinson was good. Dano's Riddler, that was a choice. Uh, not 100% sure it really worked for that character, but I was fine with it sort of aping all those kind of weird like Jallo movies and weird fetish mask wearing killers and stuff. I thought that was kind of fun. Um, I liked all the mob boss stuff because it was very reminiscent of things like Long Halloween and Dark Victory and which are some of my favorite Batman stories. Uh, mm. The action scenes were pretty good. The soundtrack was good. The cinematography was good. It's just too fucking long and it really kind of buckles under itself in the third act. There's my summary of that movie. Yeah, what did you think? Yeah. Okay, well, bearing in mind that we may come back to the Batman in a future episode, so I don't want to go on too long. Yeah. Um, and bearing in mind, like, when we rewatch it, my thoughts may have settled more. Blah, blah, blah. I thought... I'm kind of in the same boat as you are, but I think my thoughts kind of tend more towards the negative. I think there's a lot to like in this movie. Long though it is. Interminably long though it is, I should say. It doesn't have three hours worth of plot. That's the elephant in the room. It doesn't actually have three hours worth of anything. If this was cut down to two hours, I'd probably have stronger feelings towards it. But listen... I think the fundamental thing for me with this movie is it doesn't seem to quite know what it's trying to do with the setting and the characters. Like, aesthetically, I liked it, but I mean, and I will also say, like, this movie, they were shooting it for like three years, and I know that they did more digital background stuff than they wanted to, um, which is kind of evident in quite a few scenes. I think, like, a lot of those rooftop scenes, it's like, well, that's not a real skyline. Yeah, yeah, those those shots looked bad in the trailers, and I thought, yeah. oh, they might fix that for the movie. And then the movie came out, and I was like, oh, they did not fix that. Yeah, and I think especially in direct contrast to like Christopher Nolan's films, where they look like they take place in the real world, it's kind of <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. There, there's a bit of a contrast there, and like that takes a little thing. To, and like I understand they're going for a slightly different thing, but with with that side of it, I could kind of. I like Matt Reeves as a director, but he's very much a hired gun. And I think what you could see in this movie was the studio execs going, well, they didn't like the Snyder version, so cross that out. They liked the Burton version, so let's have 20% more Burton in the aesthetic. They liked the Nolan version, so let's have 60% of that. And, you know, just kind of like, you, you could almost see the equations a little bit. And I think that's evident in the fact that they even include the Riddler and, spoiler alert, the Joker... Because like those characters don't really need to be in this story, like no, because even though the Rid the Riddler's like central mystery, quote unquote, is kind of what drives the plot. Actually, what drives the plot is all the stuff with Falcone and the Penguin and like the Which political is atmosphere. More interesting, yeah. And thing. I think you could have got through that with just Batman and Gordon. You didn't need the Riddler being the one to guide them through it. That said, there are a lot of scenes that I really enjoyed. I did like the scene with the guy in the church when the has the bomb around his neck and they have to solve yeah, the riddles. Really, really well Because that was the one scene where the Riddler was the Riddler. Um, I, I liked all the action scenes, to be honest. I thought they were all pretty cool. Like the car chase and stuff with the penguin. Um, mm -hmm. I especially liked the bit where he has to punch Gordon in the face and you know he's like run, running out of the police uh, head building and then ends up on the top and then has to dive off with his shitty little flight suit. It was kind of fun. 
I really, really enjoyed Robert Pattinson as Batman, to be fair. I think if he hadn't been in the film, I think it, I would hate this movie, actually. Um, obviously, we've shouted out to Jeffrey Wright uh, quite a bit, and he's great as Gordon. Perfect casting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think uh, Zoe Kravitz... I nearly said Lenny Kravitz, but that's not right. I think Zoe Kravitz uh, is great as... i Lenny Kravitz plays Catwoman. <laughs> well, it's just this tight package, bulging. <laughs> that's his um, whip, mate. <laughs> <laughs> just swinging by his dick across Gotham yeah give me that movie well there's an image for you and uh, <laughs> Zoe if you're listening there's an image about your dad um, <laughs> hi Zoe yeah, I, thought she, I thought she was great as Catwoman um, yeah I mean obviously that we'll kind of cap it there because we don't want to talk too much about this yeah um, I think if we're going to shout one last thing out about it before we move on is Colin Farrell is fantastic as the oh yeah yeah, yeah. He's, he's great as well like that makeup job is superb yeah but yeah in general I think it, and this is one criticism I don't like to level too much at movies but I do think it takes itself a little too seriously would also be my other thing yeah um, like I get what they're going for with it like they're trying to tell this like kind of story about like what actually is Batman, like blah, 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 blah. And I kind of think we've had too many Batman films to really do that right now. And what I want is just, like, just have a Batman adventure. We don't need this gubbins around it. And to be fair, when it was committed to being, like, this kind of pulpy crime story, I really enjoyed it. It's just when it went off into the, the Riddler and the, like, ooh, Batman, aren't we kind of the same when you think about it? Like, all of that, like, ah, oh, come on, leave it out. Yeah, and also, I kind of thought, I saw The Dark Knight, you know? I've seen that. And yeah, I've seen like, it done better. Yeah, like, we've already seen a Batman movie that is taking itself very seriously. Like mm. we've, we've been there. I mean, but even a, even the Dark Knight has humor, has more humor than this movie. Yeah, though. it has a it has a lot more levity, definitely. And like mm. I, you know, my thoughts on the the Batman or the Nolan Batman uh, movies, which we will come to at some point, um, are not particularly my preference because they do take themselves a little bit more seriously and they're a bit more sort of grounded within reality, which is not particularly how I like my my Batman. Um but I think they those movies definitely balance their tone a lot better than yeah. what this new one does. This new one sort I will of say, swings for the fences re- and doesn't quite land all over the place. I will say having rewatched uh, Batman Begins and the Dark Knight prior to the Batman coming out, there's a lot more humour than people realise in those movies. Or I people haven't seen remember, this film for a long say. time, so I couldn't really call especially, it. Especially Begins, like, because uh, I was watching it with a friend of the show, Abby Balabi, and we were both commenting on the fact that, like, yeah, there's actually way more, like, we were kind of saying, like, Marvel energy, <laughs> but, like, there's <laughs> the idea of, like, you know, the characters are way quippier than people remember, I think. Uh, which is kind of a sign of the times they were made, I, I think. But, like, yeah. It's I mean... interesting to, to go from that to, um, to the Snyder we simply cannot have Batman be humorous at all to then the Batman where you kind of have this weird thing. It's not that it's totally humorless. And to be clear, when I say humor, I don't necessarily mean I need there to be, well, that just happened kind of stuff. But like, yeah, like just like, you know, uh, just levity. There needs to be like yeah. characters need to show they have senses of humor. I think. Yeah, precisely. And I think that's what Nolan actually does quite well in most of his films is like, there's never like comedy moments necessarily, but like, the characters make jokes and are funny with one another. Yeah, the humor is kind of more realistic. slice of life, really. I guess. Yeah. Like, it's just yeah. things that people would say. Yeah. And I think as well, like the thing that he utilizes that Matt Reeves doesn't is Alfred for that kind of stuff. 
Mm. Because, I mean, also he has Michael Caine as Alfred, so, you know, it's kind of, he lends it a sense of gravitas, but also a sense of, like, he can be the one who's like, well, Master Wayne, what are you playing at? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, you know, it can be kind of, you know, he, he can do that. And that's what Nolan uses Kane for in all of his movies, right? He could, He's the one who can kind of go, isn't all this a bit ridiculous, though, Master Wayne? And, you know, you can have <laughs> that like without that's... it feeling too too weighted, you know, in that direction. I feel like that's just Michael Caine to Christopher Nolan. Like, do we really have to drive this helicopter into this building, Mr. Nolan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you, sh- are you entirely sure? that it's necessary to flip a truck in the middle of Chicago. I mean, only if you are <laughs> sure, Mr. Dowland. <laughs> <laughs> concerned Michael Caine is our new character. <laughs> um, and for more concerned Michael Caine, tune in to Season 2, Episode 1. Ooh, that was, that was very good. You're, like, trying to take my segue cred away from me. <laughs> anyway, um, that's enough talk of the Batman. We may get into a more detailed review of that at some point. I do want to say, a lot of people seem to really like that movie. If that's the version of Batman that you you go to and you're like, yes, this is it, fine, good, well done. I will say, what I find annoying is, I don't like this thing that we always have to do in these franchises where we go, well, it's, it shits all over this previous incarnation. And it's like, come on now. Like It was annoying when the Nolan bros did it. It's annoying now when the, the fans of the Batman do it to, to the Nolan bros. It's just annoying. Stop doing it. In a yeah. franchise like Batman, there's so many iterations that, like, yeah, there's going to be some versions that are your favourite, and there's going to be some versions that are not, you know? Yeah, I think we're also seeing a lot of discourse around the fact that you've got a lot of people who have become quite jaded about the whole MCU stuff that are lauding yeah. the Batman for not being like those. And I have to admit, I definitely got a bit more enjoyment out of that movie because it did feel very different to all the MCU stuff yeah. because I've become quite fatigued with that myself. Yeah, but uh, I can't say it's a perfect movie because it's really no. not. Yeah, and like, I, I get that. I, I appreciate the more serious tone and like all that kind of stuff, but I think it still has some of the hallmarks of the MCU that I really don't like, like the very obvious setups for sequels and stuff, which are all yeah. over this movie. Again, it feels like, like you say, with Matt Reeves being like a hired gun, it does feel like the studio definitely have their, their fingers in many pies of that movie, and they're like, yeah. we have to put the Joker in it, because, you know, that's that's franchise. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's like, the Joker's in it for no reason, like, there's no... I know there's a deleted scene that they cut out, but I think we've both seen it at this point, but, like, yeah. that was cut out, and now the scene with the Joker just doesn't need to be in there. But speaking of the Joker, let's talk about an actually good one, because yes. we're, start, we're starting off with... Batman 1989, directed by Tim Burton, uh, which mm. obviously stars Michael Keaton as Batman, Jack Nicholson as the Joker. You've got Kim Basinger, 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 uh, Brian Singer. Uh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Now, talk uh, about a supervillain. Uh, Kim Basinger, Billy D. Williams, Michael Goff, Jack Palance, um, really good stacked cast in this movie, which mm. I have to say about Tim Burton in general, I always think that he's very good at casting. Yeah, yeah, he's very good at casting the same five white people over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, Although not, 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 not at this point, I should no, say. No, 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 and uh, you know, we... We did obviously allude to this in the the cursed time we talked about this, but I do want to quickly just flag it up again in that I am a big fan of Tim Burton, and I feel like today that's like a a shameful thing to admit to because he has made some absolute guff in recent years. Like he he has yeah, fallen off the wagon dross. hard. He's fallen off the wagon John Carpenter Dario Argento style. That's the thing. 
Well, it's um, kind of different from those guys though, because he's making these big, you know, millions of dollars movies. Like, he's kind of become a company stooge for Disney at this point. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't see Dumbo because you know life's too short. Um, yeah, but, you know, he also did like Alice in Wonderland, which and... was guff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is Disney, but obviously there's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and. Uh... No, it wasn't Disney that helmed that, but yeah, I mean that movie is. Uh, I mean, I don't think that film is as bad as most people say it is, but it's still no. not particularly great. It's probably one of the better ones among his more recent output, I, I would argue. But yeah, yeah, I mean, he has he has this run of films from um, the '80s to sort of like '99, so from Pee Wee. Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which is great. To, yeah, that's uh, a great movie. I'm glad you agree with me on that. I think that yeah. movie's fantastic. Uh, From there to the like Sleepy here. Hollow in 99, it's pretty much banger after banger. Yeah, I've got the list here just for the listeners. So, like, this well, is just... Hit us ins- with the Burton list. It's an insane run of movies. So, starting from 1985, you've got Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow. Like... What a run of great movies. Yeah, yeah. And then Planet of the Apes happened. So you were circling it all back. We're circling it all back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind um, of weird connection between these uh between <laughs> this movie and um the Batman, right? Is that both the directors made yeah. Batman movies and Planet of the Apes movies. They just clearly really like monkeys. Who doesn't? That's true, they are great. Um <clears throat> so no, Batman nineteen eighty nine. So we this is something that we both know about a lot about, but obviously a lot of our listeners might not. But this movie was a big deal when it came out. Yeah, this was huge. Huge, like nothing had ever really been done like this before. And I know that you, I know you definitely have all the spiel on this, so I'm going to hand it over to you because I don't. Ah. <laughs> I'm putting pressure on you. I'm putting pressure on you. Yeah. So I mean, the thing to uh, really say about this movie, um, in terms of uh, the kind of hype around it, I suppose is so batman was in an interesting place in the cultural zeitgeist in 19 uh, in the sort of late 80s right where the dominant cultural impression of the character was very colored by the 60s tv show with adam west a show that we all now recognize was as genius and was and was very popular in the, in the late 60s but you know there was a resentment from comic book fans that this had become the kind of kidified version of batman that people kind of thought of right this sort of campy ironic take right i will say that's kind of an unfair perception from fans at the time because the comic books at the time were very much the same tone so this was uh you know comic books being affected by the comics code we haven't got time to get into that but basically reducing down the violence making them more kid-friendly silver age stuff so silver age batman to some to some extent pretty much was the adam west show right yeah um and uh you know that's what they were adapting and and responding to i mean they added more irony to it and more um more tongue-in-cheek humor uh but essentially is a a page-to-screen adaptation however since that show had been off the air for uh you know a decade or so well over a decade at this point 1989 that the tim burton movie comes out the perception has started to change. There's this kind of divide between, obviously, people who are still familiar with the comic books because then the comics code started to fade away and they kind of started to go back to, uh, you know, the more original incarnation of Batman, this kind of noirish detective type stuff in, in the 70s. Um, and I know that like people like Alan Moore and uh, Frank Miller in the 80s get a lot of credit for 
quote unquote reinventing Batman, taking him to back to the darker roots. So Alan Moore with the Killing Joke, uh, Frank Miller with um, uh, Batman Year One, Dark Knight Returns, and so on and so forth. Uh, well, and that, that stories, by the way. Yeah, yeah, and that's and obviously iconic. Uh, but there were writers like uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adam, uh, and the artist Neil Adams, who had this legendary run from sort of the late seventies throughout the eighties on the mainstream detective comics and Batman. Um, which does then, which is change. I mean, they covered a lot of different genres, but they're kind of going back to this classic idea of the Dark Knight, the detective Batman, and kind of slowly working it back to that. So, like, what people sometimes don't quite realize in when they're recounting the history of Batman going from campy back to dark is that there was all this stuff that preceded Batman Year One. Year One was kind of a, a response to that. It was them kind of going, like, oh well, people want this new version of Batman, they want to go, or not even new version, but going back to the classic iteration. And year one was kind of a reboot that took that, uh, you know, took that mentality and kind of went, okay, let's modernize it. And so that's kind of what that is. Uh, very similar in, in a weird way, and obviously this movie takes a lot of influence from that comic book, but very similar to the way that Batman Begins is kind of taking it back, quote unquote, to the darker tone of the Burton movies, but kind of adding this modern sheen to it after the Schumacher movies. It's very yeah. similar. They reflect each other in that way. Well, it's, you know, uh, Batman's thing just seems to go in cycles, really, doesn't it? So. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like uh, Bond, I guess, is the only thing you can really compare it to, where, like, whenever they introduce a new Bond, they go, well, this is going to be the most serious, the most proper, the most edgy, the most faithful. And then, you know, three or four movies later, it's just become the campy Roger Moore era again. And then it cycles back over and over and over, round and round and round like that. I think Batman's quite similar. I will say we've been in this dark and gritty vein for quite a while. Um, but anyway, that's maybe something we can discuss at a later date. In terms of Batman, 1989, the hype was real around this movie because the desire had been building in the fandom and that kind of bleeds out into the, the general population for a proper, quote-unquote, take on Batman, a dark take on Batman. And so, you know, Tim Burton's announced as the director and people are generally into this idea. Even though Pee-wee's Big Adventure is not necessarily like a particularly dark movie, it's like a kid's movie. Has its no. moments. Yeah, we all oh, remember yeah. Large March. Oh my god, I mean, I'm still having nightmares about Large March, mate. Like, Jesus fucking Christ, I was not prepared for that as a child. Yeah, the perception is, you know, this is... Because uh, he'd done Beetlejuice at this point as well. Mm. So Beetlejuice is a big hit um, and people kind of like this sort of macabre gothic vision that he's bringing to it so the perception was they've hired this real director with a real vision to make batman cool again essentially then things get controversial because burton brings with him the star of uh, beetlejuice michael keaton who he casts as batman not alec baldwin the other star of beetlejuice. yes well we said this last time uh he must have gone into uh, the wb and gone I've got just the guy to play Batman. It's someone I've just worked with on Beetlejuice. And they're looking through the Beetlejuice cast going, well, it's not going to be Gina Davis. Oh, <laughs> Can you imagine, I, I, though? <laughs> I mean, that would be something. If he, but they must have been going, oh, well, you know, he, 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 he looks good in a suit. He's got a gravelly voice. Uh, yeah, Alec Baldwin, surely. And then he goes, no, Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably went home, because um, you can't see his fucking yeah. face in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Although, fun fact... Um, before we get further into this lecture that I'm now giving you. Um, one, there were several iterations that were, almost became movies along the way, but never quite uh, got off the ground. I want to flag up one version, uh, directed by a friend of the pod, 
not really, but uh, <laughs> recently deceased friend of the pod, Ivan Reitman, uh, was going to star Bill Murray as Batman. And I believe they wanted Peter O'Toole for the Joker. Somewhere there's a timeline that exists where that is a thing, and I I need it. I need to know the what most that movie was cocaine fueled iteration of Batman ever. I'm sure. I think like yeah, the Joker's not even wearing face paint; it's just coke just <laughs> slapped on the face. It would been a, from what been from magic. what I understand, the pitch was closer to the Adam West show than what we got with Tim. It Bird. would have to be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. Though that like, team of people are not making gritty dark Batman. Okay, they're making Adam West that, yeah. does a shitload of coke. That's what Peter doing. O'Toole could do a, a serious. Uh, Joker, yeah, no, absolutely, cool. but alongside Bill Murray and Ivan Reitman, I don't see that being the case. <laughs> no, no. Not at all. Um, well, that's that, anyway. So, yeah, Tim Burton's Batman comes out. Um, people were naysaying on uh, Michael Keaton because the role he was most known for outside of Beetlejuice was Mr. Mom, uh, which is a largely forgotten comedy where he has... Where the premise is, what if a man had to stay at home and raise the kids? That is a scandalous um, idea, and whoever wrote that should be ashamed of themselves for ever suggesting such a thing. <laughs> Can you honestly imagine was, a time where that was like cutting edge? That was that was funny enough to be the premise of a movie. Some some execs went, yeah. Do you know what? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure at the end of the movie, the whole thing is, you know, it's fine that he stays at home and is the dad, right? Well, you'd hope so, but, wouldn't you? You'd hope so. But I mean this. This is the 80s. The 80s were a lawless, godless time. They were. They were probably um, just doing coke at the end, I don't know. Yeah, it's doing coke off the baby's head. <laughs> um, yeah, so people were kind of naysaying this. Uh, there's a great uh, video clip that Abdul uh, flagged up to me, which I'm going to put on the Facebook uh, when this drops, where you can literally see uh, a news thing from the time of fans bitching about Michael Keaton being cast as Batman. And it ends with Adam West being interviewed on the subject, and West loses interest in the interview question as he's answering it, and it's very funny. <laughs> um, I've not seen that, but I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah. So, anyway, this movie comes out. Um, well, first of all, they've got the Joker. They cast Jack Nicholson as, as uh, the Joker. There were several other people that they kind of floated and knocked about a bit. Uh, Tim Burton wanted Brad Dourif at one point, Which... and the studio went, Who? And yeah. he went, never mind. Understandably, <laughs> um, like, Brad Dourif might not be the biggest star, but, like, if you are familiar with Brad Dourif, you would absolutely want him as the Joker, wouldn't you? Like, he's yeah, um, kind of perfect uh, he's, for it. If people don't know the Chucky movies, then uh, Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was, saying, I was, I was see... thinking off the top of my head, like, what else do I know Brad Dourif from? And I'm like, yeah, nobody's going to know those movies. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of wild that he's in Lord of the Rings, actually. But, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he's great. Know, he's he's great in it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, other than that, like you know, he's in um, he's in Blue Velvet. Um, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, in The Exorcist yeah. Three. Um, he's yes. in that one he's really good X Files episode. episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, it's um, great. Sue me. <laughs> anyway, so um, yes, one thing to flag up before we get into the uh, plot of this movie, I think it's important to say. This movie influences Hollywood for decades after. Um, not just in terms of being a successful comic book movie, but in terms of how this movie was, was sold, um, the way that they used a pre-existing IP. Uh, so, so like you know, people always uh, talk about um, Star Wars and Jaws at the end of the 70s being kind of the birth of the, the blockbuster, right? Or, or kind of influencing the, 
the form in which the blockbuster movie takes from then on. Um, obviously, there are other movies that were similarly successful, but you're looking at, um, you know, in the case of Star Wars, like science fiction becoming this big blockbuster genre, whereas previously it was a bit more niche. And uh, you obviously, in the case of Jaws, like just what should have been a cheapy thriller ending up being this big cultural event, you know. Because uh, prior to that, only real movies were successful. <laughs> well, yeah, you know. No, that's a joke, but yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, Bat- so Batman 89, I think, also needs to be mentioned in the same breath because this movie kind of influences... It definitely influences the 90s, just oh, for without sure. question. For the sure. 90s blockbuster. But I think we're still seeing the effects of this today. Well, this, this is kind of the first iteration of what's this IP that we've not done anything with for some time. Uh, IP for knows not in the know intellectual property, so, i.e. something that the studio owns copyright to. But it's the first kind of iteration of that where they go, what do we what do we own that we're not doing anything with that we can do this massive rebrand of and sell as a new product? And that's essentially what Batman eighty nine is. I don't think it's as cynical as it is nowadays, but that you know there is an element of that because when you look at the marketing uh, campaign for this, the initial poster for this movie. And they, many other movies tried this in the 90s and didn't succeed because they weren't as well known as Batman. But it's just a black poster, bat symbol. The first poster doesn't even have names above the title. It doesn't even have a title. It's just bat symbol, black background, release date. And they knew that's all they needed. <laughs> there were that's billboards so apparently throughout America of do? just that. Just that. Yeah. And people went crazy for this movie. It was a huge, huge hit. Um... Yeah, so I think in that regard, I mean, it also kind of ushers in this weird era of the 90s where it's where they tried to do comic book movies, but based on comic books from the 30s. Because I think what they kind of took away from the, from I almost said The Batman, but from Batman 89 is like, oh, what people like about this is the kind of mishmash of aesthetics from the 30s and from the 80s. So let's, let's try and do that. So you have these movies like, like Dick Tracy. They really tried <laughs> the same marketing campaign there. And it's kind of the same deal, right? Where like, the biggest, like, the, or like where they get Al Pacino to play um, Big Boy Caprice, right? The villain in that. It's kind of the same deal, right? Where you've got Jack Nicholson adding legitimacy to 89. It's the same thing there. Um, they even have Danny Elfman do the score for that movie. That's all I'm saying. I've never seen it. Is it Madonna in it? If not, I remember. Yes. Yeah. Um, me, me and Abby Vallabi rewatched that one recently, and that is a weird fucking movie. Okay. okay we well. will cover it at some point on this podcast. <laughs> cool so don't watch it. This. Don't watch it. Don't watch it, Mark. Until we until we cover it on the podcast. I'm pretty sure it's had a Blu-ray re-release recently, so I might. It has. It looks crisp. It looks crisp. It looks crisp. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, crisp dick. Yeah. So yeah. So you have this, uh, Dick Tracy, um, the Phantom, the Shadow, all these kind of like pulp heroes that they're trying to bring back because for some reason the lesson Hollywood took away from this was. People want old things from the 30s, because obviously Batman's from the 30s. <laughs> Not people in rubber suits beating each other up, which is very much yeah, the same yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think even then, like when they came around to eventually getting it right and started doing Brian Singer, known rapists, X-Men, and uh, Sam Raimi, known decent blokes, Spider-Man, they, they're, very much throwing, they're very much throwing back to the formula of Batman 89 in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the other thing as well, which um, you mentioned in very, very great detail last time when we tried this, um, was that it also was like a multimedia 
event as yes. well. Like, you know, there was a toy line. I'm pretty sure McDonald's did the toys for as well for the They did. Um, you got the Prince album, which yes. for some reason is attached to this movie. Um Well, I think because he's the most famous guy that uh, Warner Bros. Records had on their roster at that which, point. Which, you know, from a business perspective does make sense. Mm. And I love Prince. Like, I really do. I don't know why his music is in this movie. <laughs> no, well, we'll get to that. But this definitely, it definitely starts that trend of big blockbusters having these tie-in albums. Do you remember these? Especially in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, it's, um, music from and inspired now. by. Music from and inspired by. Because that was definitely something they did with uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man as well. Because he had that fucking Nickelback track. <laughs> um, yes, they yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That absolute guff, yeah. Um, and obviously, like, the Schumacher Batman movies really lean into this, where they've got, like, U2, Smashing Pumpkins, fucking uh, R. Kelly, another known rapist, um, some other people who... Oh, Seal, Seal, of course. Yeah, because Kiss uh, they've from got all these... was the song for one of these movies for Yeah, it was uh, Batman Forever. Um, yeah, Why? and they have, like, all these... <laughs> These big artists, oh, Method Man is on the Batman Forever soundtrack, even though he doesn't appear in the movie. Um, and that was kind of always the the, the, the con of these tie-in albums, right? Because it's music from and inspired by. So they can include, like, the two songs that appeared in the movie and then, like, seven other tracks. <laughs> like, just whatever else was kicking about that day. Like, whatever yeah. else they found on the desk. Or as they did with the Schumacher ones, they'll just go, like, hey, Method Man, record a rap about the Riddler. And he'll be like... Ooh, yeah, the Riddler. Ooh, and then you can just put that on the album. <laughs> like they don't even bother mastering it or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, we've kind of talked around the, uh, uh, the the context of this movie, the impact of this movie. Should we get into the movie itself a little bit? We should. I mean, I don't really feel like we need to go too far into the plot because everybody has seen these movies, surely. Like... Yeah, I mean, we can maybe give like a two-line summary. Just. Uh, Batman so, fight Joker. Yeah, so it's it's a Batman versus Joker story, taking yeah. a fair bit of influence from things like The Killing Joke, which Tim Burton has admitted to being quite a big fan of, and has also yeah. said it's the only comic book he's ever read, which I find quite amusing. Um, yes. But no, so this movie shows how the Joker comes to be, and it's, I also like the fact that this movie as well, Batman is already established. This is not an origin story for Batman. Yes. Um, because, again, it's going back to the whole marketing thing people know who batman is they know batman's story they don't need to show it but one thing this movie does do um is the during the opening scene we see a family well a mum a dad and a child uh coming out of a movie theater going down an alleyway and obviously we then think oh we're gonna see bruce wayne's parents die and this is not what happens instead batman swoops down and and all this and i thought that was a really cool little subversion that they did um, which, you know, for the time as well was definitely, you know, having a lot more faith in their audience than what I think a lot of these fucking movies do now, especially a lot of these comic book movies. Um, hmm. But no, I really yeah. like the fact that, yeah, Batman is already pre-established because they don't need to give him an origin, but that opening is quite a nice little subversion on that idea. Um, yeah. Quite it's interesting because it, yeah, it plays on the fact that the audience will know Batman's origin, yeah. which I think is interesting. And I think, yeah, Whereas, you, you wouldn't yeah. assume a movie from this time period would try something like that. Yeah. And because, kind of, you know, that is an aspect of his character that is is consistent across all these iterations. Even the uh, Adam West show, in the first episode, you have a bit where Adam West, as Bruce Wayne, is like, uh, uh, yes, like the criminal who gunned down my own dear parents all those years ago. So, like, that is an element that people know about Batman. So, 
So just in case any future Batman filmmakers are, are listening, you don't need to show it again. You just don't. Like, we know who Batman is. It's like Spider-Man. It's like, we don't need another movie where we see Peter Parker get bitten by a radioactive spider. Yeah. We've had that twice before. We don't or need Uncle it. Ben get iced. Yeah. Uncle Ben can already be dead. Just let let Uncle Ben die. <laughs> well, that's that's what they did with the MCU version, to be fair. Though. They Uncle did, ben and I think it's because, you know, this is the third attempt they've had at getting Spider-Man done right. Yeah. And so you know, and they kind of subverted it even then, because they have the quote-unquote Uncle Ben moment be Aunt May dying in the third one. Yeah. Yeah, that's, Spoilers yeah, that for, yeah, that for Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> that, that movie that I'm pretty certain everybody under the fucking sun has seen. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, so just a long story short, the plot. Um, yeah, the Joker, he's a mobster uh, called Jack Napier. He is accidentally dropped into some acid by Batman and becomes uh, the jokester. Yeah, which is definitely something I'd like to flag up because I think one thing about this movie that is quite interesting to me is the fact that it actually takes a lot of liberties with the Joker as a character. Um so the whole Jack Napier thing is original to this movie and has since become a thing in the comics as well. Like whenever the Joker is assigned an, an actual identity pre Yeah, it's usually Jack Napier. It's usually yeah. Jack Napier, yeah. Um, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't in the Joker movie, presumably because they didn't have the budget to pay uh, Jack Nicholson the shitloads <laughs> of money he gets from being Jack Napier. Um, which if people don't know, Jack Nicholson assigned one of the most legendary, um, I'm going to say it, Burglary-based contracts <laughs> I've ever heard of in my criminal, life. Criminal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he got so much of the back end of this movie, and also the uh, the merchandising. He basically he pulled to George Lucas. He was like, "Oh, I'll take a pay cut if you give me this much of the back end and also this much of the merchandising. I want also any merchandising that features the Joker that's related to this movie, and also." anything that uses the name Jack Napier going forwards. So that includes Batman the Animated Series, and that includes the comic books. So he's getting, he's getting, he's still getting kickbacks from this to this day. I, I, also, I read as well, apparently, that because uh, Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito are good friends, and supposedly mm. when Batman Returns was uh, sort of in pre-production, Jack Nicholson was the one that basically went up to DeVito and went, do it. Just yeah. do it. You will make so much money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um and look yeah. fair play fair play to them I mean. honestly yeah fair play to him like he knew what he was doing and like you say he lends this movie a sense of legitimacy because he is brilliant in this film it's uh, one thing i will say as well and i feel like this is not a controversial thing to say but it feels like it should be is that when you look at jack nicholson's like best performances you obviously think of you know one flow of the cuckoo's nest the shining i think his performance as the joker is right up there with the best yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think he's great in this movie. He has that kind of perfect blend of, um, yeah, like actual menace and actual humor that kind of sit next to each other. Especially when you compare him to like more recent iterations of the Joker, sort of post Heath Ledger, where it's just like, well, they're all just bad Heath Ledger impressions, really. But they're all just trying to out crazy one another. Whereas what I like about the Nicholson Joker is he doesn't actually do that too much. Like he seems like he knows what he's doing. Even if what he's doing is insane, objectively, on the face of it. Um, yeah. So we should we should say, so the Joker has this has a series of weird plans that seem to mostly be... Well, he gets revenge on the mob boss who set him up, uh, steals his woman, and also kills some other mob bosses, uh, essentially making himself the clown prince of crime in Gotham, as he should be. Um, 
he then kind of goes on a series of bizarre rampages. One which includes selling dodgy uh, makeup products that uh, kill you? Question mark. That feels very out of the Adam West series, doesn't it? Like that whole yeah. bit is very, very strange. And, and the whole broadcast on the TV that the Joker does with the dead models yes. with the superimposed mouths is yeah. Not so that's only great. Yeah, weird as shit. Very Tim Burton. Yeah, there's a great scene where um, it cuts to a, a news broadcast where uh, it's how these two models have been found dead from mysterious causes, and it flashes up the image, and they've got you know the pale Joker faces and their dead dead bodies, um, and then over the course of this broadcast, the female newscaster starts laughing uncontrollably, and then the Joker hacks into the broadcast to reveal that he's placed his Joker products in all these other beauty products, and you know. I think that's great. As you say, it's very Tim Burton. It's really funny. I love the fact that he uses the he uses cardboard cutouts of the models in his uh, broadcast, and he makes their mouths move. Going, love that Joker. It's <laughs> so great. It's so it's great. great. Um, it's a good example of like the yeah. This movie has a lot of humor in it, but none of it feels out of place. Um, yeah, one one thing I would say about Nicholson's Joker as well is I feel like it's kind of the perfect mid-ground between what he was doing and what Tim Burton was doing because if you watch a lot of the scenes where the Joker's doing his like, murders and stuff it feels like Tim Burton was very much like you need to play him as a mob boss once we've got that do whatever the hell you want on top of it. It's like, yeah, as long as yeah. we've got you doing it as a serious mob boss then you can just go crazy on top of it and that's kind of what happens like the bit where he kills um, the, the rival mob boss who his woman he takes uh, you have him shooting him in a very sort of realistic, cold manner. And then once he's already full of bullets, you've got him, you know, bending over and shooting between his legs and over his shoulder. And it's really kind of silly. But again, that works because he's already shown that he's very dangerous. And now he's just gone completely insane. I like the fact that you get to see him as Jack Napier because you kind of see his descent. In, although it's controversial to give the Joker a concrete origin story, I like that you see his kind of the Joker-esque personality traits that are already there in Jack Napier, like his vanity and his narcissism, but also his kind of need for to be chaotic. Like, the very fact that he's sleeping with, like, his, like, Don, essentially. He's sleeping with his Don's girlfriend for no particular reason. He doesn't seem to like her all that much. No. He just seems to be doing it because... Because he can. Because he can. Yeah. And you have that, then that's kind of the, the beginning of the his... His jokerification, if you will, like the personality traits are already there. It's just when he gets his face burnt up and he, you know, he's all disfigured and whatnot, he just finally lets loose into his like id, so to speak. And it's one of the things that this movie does so well is it does is very much show don't tell. Like when we see him as Jack Napier, he has the Joker card and he has the sort of subtle purple suits and stuff like that, and it's just it's nice sort of visual cues. We also get that with Batman uh, himself. Um, yeah, we should talk a little bit about Batman. <laughs> we should. I mean, I think that's one thing I'll say about both the Tim Burton movies is they're kind of not really about Batman that much. They're more about his villains, I would say. Or yeah, least... that's the common the common criticism. Yeah. But personally speaking, I mean, I think Batman is a good character, and he's you know, there's a lot that you can do with Batman. But but I think the reason why I'm so into Batman because I'm not really that into the superheroes that much is because comparatively i don't think anybody else has a as well defined and 
well thought out series of villains because I think compared to a lot of other heroes, Batman's villains actually are like more three dimensional characters that you know stand apart from Batman. Like you know, the Joker and Catwoman, people know more about those characters than they do some of the, like the Marvel characters who are like the heroes and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's what the two Burton movies do really well is that they focus on the villains and actually give them a lot of like love and respect. And I think that might be yeah. why I'm such a fan of them. Yeah, I, I do want to shout out um, Michael Keaton's Batman. I, I think he's uh, definitely up in the upper ranks of Batman. I, I like yeah. his Bruce Wayne. He's kind of a weirdo. Um, <laughs> it's very he has, but he, but he has that kind of like spacey weirdness where I think the, like the Christian Bale Batman, well Bruce Wayne rather. If you met him, you'd be like, yeah, I can buy this guy's Batman. <laughs> but with, like, he's with, got a shitload of money. He looks after himself. He probably would break and, the jaw. Yeah, and he seems yeah super intense. Yeah. Whereas like the Keaton Batman, and like that's cool in its own way, but like the Keaton Batman, I think has this thing of like there is the duality where when he's Batman, he's like super focused, super intense, and then when he's Bruce Wayne, he's kind of just drifting through life, doesn't really yeah, he's very aloof. Uh, register as Bruce Wayne. yeah, kind of doughy eyed as well. <laughs> but he he's the first actor really to do this thing of separating. Bruce and Batman, not just in terms of voice, but in terms of like the physical demeanor, uh, very like keeping them very, very separate. Like they feel like two different personalities almost. Um, and I think one thing this movie does really well that I think I'd like to see them do more. I guess you see a bit of that with with the Matt Reeves one actually. Uh, is he's always they're, they're not afraid to make Batman a little creepy. Like he's always kind of bathed in shadow. Like even scenes with Vicky Vale, uh, Kim Basinger. We have scenes where he takes her to the to the Batcave. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, to the Batcave. Where yeah. um, he's kind of giving her stuff and being like, oh, you need to take this. It's the antidote for the Joker Venom and all this. And he's like like mostly cast in shadow. And it's shot like he's this like universal monster. And she's clearly scared of him. Because at that point, obviously, she doesn't know it's, it's Bruce. But I like that they kind of lean into that. That he is this kind of almost like a Phantom of the Opera-esque character. In, in some regards um i think we are almost out of time for batman 89 so let's quickly run down a character ranking uh, i know we didn't really talk much about the plot but everyone's fucking seen batman yeah 89, like it is the plot of this movie is literally just jack napier jack napier becomes the joker he just goes on a little crime spree and then eventually has to tussle with batman that's kind of it yeah and, and then, then like vicky vale and bruce oh I, and it yeah vicky vale and bruce fuck uh turns out Jack Napier killed Bruce's parents. Yeah, which is a a, a weird inclusion, but I'm kind of fine with it because I feel like the Burton movies yeah. stand as their own thing, so I'm not too yeah. bothered by it. But it's a bit of a strange choice. Yeah, yeah. So, um, character rankings. Okay, so Batman slash Bruce Wayne, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton um, might be my favorite live action depiction of Batman. So it's a hard time for me. I think he does really well, like you said, the duality. Um, and again, like you mentioned how like Jack Nicholson's character just becomes like pure id. I feel like there's like degrees of that with uh, Keaton's performance, where as Batman, he's a lot more kind of free, I guess. And like you say, focused. Yeah. And I think there's, yeah, there's sort of shades of that sort of thing going on. But I like him a lot. In, well, I love him. That's what I say. I love him. Yeah, I agree. Hard time for me. Um I will say in this movie the suit isn't doing him any favors. It's clearly a bit ill-fitting. No, it's very um, stiff. Yeah, and but I think he works with it. And uh, yeah, I really like his Bruce Wayne. I really like his Batman. Um, he's convincing as Bruce Wayne. He's convincing as Batman. Um, 
yeah, I really like him. I don't think there's much more to say. Uh, really, I mean, it's kind of uncontroversial, right? Michael Keaton is pretty, pretty beloved as Batman. Yeah. Um, so, character two that we need to rank then. I think we've kind of talked this character to death, so let's just give a number. Uh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker. It's Ted, isn't it? Like he's yeah, fantastic, and I'm really, really quite glad as well because you were saying earlier about the whole Heath Ledger thing, where everybody's now just trying to do that. I don't think anybody has really tried to ape the Nicholson one. Like they've not tried no. to replicate it that much, and it it very much exists as its own thing, and I'm happy about that. Um, yeah, he's he's fantastic in this movie, and I really like his version of the Joker. He's kind of covers all the bases of the things about the Joker that I like. Yeah, I think it's going to be a hard ten for me as well. Um, he's so entertaining in this film. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of all there is to say about it. Uh, Kim Basinger is Vicky Vale. Um, I quite like her, but you know, she's just kind of for the most part just your love interest character, really. Yeah, and there's not a whole lot, and she kind of helps to highlight Bruce's awkwardness and the fact that you know he's just existed within this bubble as like a, a rich dude his entire life and stuff. I and... do like when they introduce Vicky uh, in this because in this she's a photographer. She's normally a, a journalist, but she's a photographer. Yeah, in the comics. Yeah, yeah. I I, I like that when they introduce her. Her reason for going with Knox, who is a character we will not give a rating to because he's a non-entity, yeah. <laughs> to, to, to find out more about Batman. Her, the reason she gives is, I like bats. Um, <laughs> and I think that's a giga-chad energy, to be honest. I think she <laughs> she knew what she wanted and it was a stiff dicking from Batman. And, uh, and you know she what? got it. She, she got it. But no, I, I like Kim Basinger in this movie. She's quite charming. As you say, she's not given much to do. Other than be menaced by the Joker and, you know, fall in love with Bruce. But yeah. I like that she's fairly upfront about wanting to jump Bruce's bones. Yeah, and I, um, I think Burton yeah. does really well with their scenes as well. Like, I really like the scene where they're sat uh, having dinner, and because uh, obviously Bruce's manner is fucking huge. Um, they're both sat on the opposite ends of this large table, and the whole thing is just ridiculous because they can't hear each other. And then they settle yeah. for having an intimate dinner with Alfred, which is obviously, you know, where Bruce feels more comfortable. I think. Yeah, even though she doesn't really get a whole lot to do, I think Burton makes good on her character with scenes like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So in terms of numerical rating, I'm probably going to give her like an 8. Like, yeah, 7 or 8, she's good. Um, yeah. But, you know, she doesn't leave much of an impression, I think. And it's a shame because, you know, I've, I've seen Kim in other movies. Um, Lil' Kim. <laughs> From Lil' Kim to Brian Singer. The Kino Inferno story. Oh, no. God. Uh, <laughs> Stop bringing him up. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, what about Michael Goch as Alfred? I feel like we can apply a rating to him now because he is the only consistent thing across these four movies, which we should also yeah. point out. Like, yes. he is the only real connective tissue because these movies go off on some fucking tangents. Um, I like him a lot as Alfred. He's more in line with the sort of animated series version, I think, which is, again, yeah. my favourite. I, I like Alfred when he's kind of snarky. Um, yeah, he's kind of partial, but it's kind of got a bit of a Jeeves vibe to him. Yeah, like when Batman's just sort of going about his business, he's just like, oh, for God's sake, Batman. I like that. Yes. I like Alfred's just like, oh, he's like looking after a toddler. Yeah. <laughs> a, yeah. a rather large toddler in a bat suit is what Batman is. He's a little man-child. Yeah, so I think... Um, do you know what, actually, do you know what, we'll save our review of Alfred for Batman and Robin, where I think it's, um, we'll save it, we'll save it's it. Put, Cause, yeah. Yeah, we'll, uh, you know, we'll assign the numerical rating later. 
Uh, who else have we got? Let's see. We've kind those are kind of the three main characters. Yeah, I mean, other than that, you've got like um, you know, Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon. As Commissioner really, Gordon doesn't really get a whole. Yeah, lot unfo- unfortunately, Gordon's kind of a non-entity in this film. I mean, he's definitely playing off the comic version of it from Batman, uh, the the series, I should say. That was confusing. Uh, the the comedic <laughs> version from the nineteen sixties show. Um, so yeah, I like him, but he's not in it in much. It's nice that he pops up in all four, like Michael Goff, but um. Yeah, he's he's kind of a non-entity, so I'm going to have to give him a 7.5. Yeah, I mean, like a 6 for me. It doesn't get enough to do. Um, uh, now we come to Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent. Again, doesn't really get enough to do, which is such a shame. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to have to give him... I mean, he's great in the scenes that he's in. Uh, you know, when you see him at, like, Bruce's fancy dinner and then when you see him at the press conference and stuff, like, he's great in those scenes. I'm going to have to take away points just because he never gets to be Two-Face across these movies. Yeah, it's like a five um, for me. It's got to be split down the middle, I think. Do you know what? I'm going to give what's there... I'm going to give it a seven because it's Billy D. Williams and it's good. I think the potential... There was potential for a ten. But... They never, they never came to be. They fucked it. They fucked it. Um, okay. I think that's about it. There's not really I mean, that's a character. character yeah. we oh, no. One character we need to discuss is the Joker's henchman, Bob. Oh, <laughs> yes. Of course. Who I think... I mean, we're obviously going to give him a, a unanimous 10 out of 10. Well, obviously, yeah. But I think we do need to point out Bob... Uh, like we've had the Legion of Uncles in the past. By the way, <laughs> Alfred... Alfred, strong contender for the Legion of Uncles, is all I'm saying. I mean, he runs um, the Legion of Uncles. What are you talking about? Okay, so Alfred is definitely... He's part of the Legion of Uncles. I think we need to start a Legion of Henchmen and discuss <laughs> the eligibility because Bob is going above and beyond the call of duty here. He is he so is. dedicated to the Joker, he will go along with any of the Joker's plans, even, like, even after he becomes the Joker. First of all... Those Joker jackets all the henchmen are wearing with the little patch with the Joker's face on. You know who was stitching those patches on. That was Bob. It was definitely Bob. Second of all, at the end of the movie, when the Joker's frustrated, he's annoyed. He says to Bob, hand me that that pistol, Bob. Bob hands it over, knowing full well the Joker's about to cap him. And the Joker caps him. And I just think, you know, there should be some kind of award for henchmen. And if there was, Bob gets it. Because Bob henches like no man has ever henched before. He is fully committed to the Joker. He he knows that his, his time's up and he just hands him the gun. Kudos <laughs> to you. Yes. Um, so on that bombshell, uh, I think we should segue into Batman Returns. Yes. In 1992? 92, same year that I was squeezed out into this world, yes. And similarly, a grotesque, gothic creation. <laughs> um, so Batman Returns is the one that I'm most excited to talk about because... I'm just going to say it now. It's my favourite. It's my favourite Batman movie. I think I'd go so far as to say it's my favourite superhero movie. I love this movie so, so much. Uh, For many, many reasons. Um, But we should, before we we get into me just having a big old gush over why I love Batman Returns so much, um, I think a little bit of context is quite necessary. So... As we mentioned previously, the 89 Batman movie was huge. It's huge, like, multimedia events, you know, like, toy lines. You've got, like, you know, cross-promotion with music. It was this huge, huge movie that made a shit ton of money at the box office. So it was it was an event, and it, it really kind of changed stuff, like you said, and its, uh, its influence is still very much being felt to this day. 
So when they announced that there was going to be a sequel, obviously everybody was, you know, frothing at the gash for it. And so three years later, Batman Returns comes out. They try and do the same thing again. You know, they want a toy line. They want McDonald's toys, an album. They, they want everything. Mm. And then the movie came out. And who boy, did it get some backlash. Yes, it got quite a bit of get backlash. It was branded as an attack on kids at one stage. It was, because um, we should say, Batman 89 was considered to be like the dark reimagining of Batman, essentially. And it is dark, Away like, from... you know, let's not yeah. deny that. It is quite a dark movie. No, but like it's a movie that would probably get a PG-13 now. Yeah. It was a 15 in this country at the time, so I can assume it was R-rated in the States. I'm not sure about that. but Possibly, yeah. But I think now it would be a 12 here, ergo PG-13 in the States. Batman Returns, however, ups the ante on violence, on sexuality, on pretty much anything that good Christian folk could be offended by, really. Yeah, this um, is a lurid film. For what it is, you know, it's it's yes. not like truly tasteless and repulsive, but my god, it really goes in some directions. Like, Tim I mean, Burton clearly had a lot of fun making this one. I mean, this the I mean, it's a classic example of he did a good he did a good job with the first one, so the studio backed off from him on the second one, and he made something that they did not care for in the end. Um, because we should say this movie opens. I mean, it has an incredible opening scene that I want to shout out anyway, because it's one of the best sequences of Tim Burton's career, in my opinion. But it opens with a post-disgrace Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, as the as Mr. Cobblepot, uh, staring out of the window, smoking his long cigarette with his monocle on. And, um, you know, we, we hear the sounds of childbirth from the next room. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he runs, in, he runs in to go and see his wife... Uh, well, first of all, the doctor's run it runs out and just shakes his head, which I like. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so he goes in to see it, and then you just hear his pained cries from the next room. Cut to him and his wife both smoking and looking out the window. Behind <laughs> them, so in good. behind them, is a shaking cage, baby-sized cage, an iron box with some bars in it that's just shaking as if there's some unholy creature in it. Uh, and then a flippered hand pops out from between the bars, pulls in the family cat, and presumably eats it. I'm gonna say they uh, then, yeah, they then elect to toss their child into the Gotham City River in a basket, and the opening titles play with the Danny Elfman Batman theme, bam 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 bam, bam plays over. A sequence, a great sequence of like Michael Keaton's name appears across a baby in a wicker basket floating down a sewer river. You don't get and that that's in how the fucking we, MCU, do you? And that is how we start in this movie. That is the origin story for this version of the Penguin. That's insane. Yeah, because like the penguin is typically, you know, shown to be a sort of member of high society crime boss kind of mm. thing. Whereas Tim Burton went, nah, or at least the the writers of the movie as well, because this was, was worth pointing out as well. This uh, movie was predominantly written by Daniel Waters, who is most yeah, known he for took over from Sam Hamm, who has a story credit in this. Yeah, wrote, so there was uh, a couple of... co-wrote Batman eighty nine. 
yeah, a yeah. cu- couple of different uh, hands on the script, but I believe um, the majority of the movie as we know it now was written by Daniel Waters, and there was uh, somebody else that came in to do a rewrite as well. Um, but Tim Burton paired with Daniel Waters, that shows <laughs> shows a lot yeah. in this movie, particularly that opening scene. Um, but as we say, you yeah, know, it's Daniel very... Was, um... The humor in this movie is very similar to the kind of dark humor in in something like Heather's. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's riffing on that same sort of thing, and I think a lot of the scenes involving Catwoman are riding that Heather's line as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of those kind of weird one like like obviously Heather's kind of gives us lines like uh, "fuck me gently with a chainsaw" and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, which this movie definitely has one liners of that caliber throughout. Yeah, my my favorite will always just be Michelle, well, Selena Kyle coming home, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, coming into the apartment saying the iconic, honey, I'm home. Oh, wait, I forgot I'm not married, which is just <laughs> perfect. So perfect. Um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the exchange later on where one of the Penguin's goons says, uh, uh, boss, uh, killing children, isn't that a little... Uh, the Penguin shoots him and goes, no, it's a lot... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so we could quote this movie all day because I think we're both in the same boat as like we're big fans of Batman Returns. Oh, absolutely! I adore this movie, and I, I think the fact that I was such a big fan of it as a kid explains a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, it certainly speaks to my love of Michelle Pfeiffer. I can tell you that much. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I feel like most people of our generation saw at way too young an age because parents were just like, "Well, it's Batman. How 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 bad could it be?" Because I definitely remember seeing this movie, and um, I had already seen Batman 89, I was working my way through the VHSs, right? I remember seeing this movie, watching the opening sequence, and already having a feeling of like, oh, what is happening here? (laughs) Like, (laughs) it was already on a level of like, this is a bit weird and spooky, and I don't know what's going on. Um, Obviously now, you know, at that age you don't necessarily get the irony of these things and kind of the the dark humour at play. So I can totally see why some kids were pretty disturbed by this movie. Because, let's face it, a lot of grim shit goes down in this movie. Yeah, I mean, the, even as an adult, there's still a lot of like really kind of provocative and violent and lurid shit that happens in this movie that I just... It's still, I still find quite shocking in a way. Uh, I mean, like, Catwoman full-on slices people's faces up in this movie. Like, yeah. That's a big thing. Um we should probably sort of summarize the plot as well because yeah, I feel let's like go we as are briefly more as possible. Talk about the elements of this movie more than yeah. anything. Um, so, so let's this... go as briefly as possible. So after the opening sequence, we're introduced to uh, Max Shrek. Yes. Who is Christopher Walken? Yep. His um, original character in this movie, yeah. not from the comics. And he is uh, an energy magnate who wants to build some energy plant, which is turns out is actually going to make him. Some, some convoluted bullshit about he's going to siphon off a load of energy and make himself the, the daddy. Obviously, Bruce Wayne already sees through him because he rejects this proposal and says he's going to fight him in in the city hall. However, we... Uh, yeah, so uh, Max is giving out some presents for Christmas because this movie is a Christmas movie. We've got to mention that. Um, he's giving out some presents and stuff for Christmas, uh, tossing out gifts into the... into the Like, a rally kind of thing for the poor people. Uh, when the Penguin's nefarious gang uh, attack and cause chaos uh, in an attempt to... Oh, well, they do, in fact, abduct Max uh, Shrek. Uh, Batman, obviously, uh, beats up the rest of the gang and foils them. Uh, We're also introduced to Selina Kyle, uh, who is Max's uh, secretary, um, who is clearly uh, browbeaten in her job, because at one point, 
Max turns to his son, who, by the way, shout out to whoever that actor is. But the <laughs> actor playing the son does an incredible walking impression. Oh, he does. He's um, great. Like, it's not over the top either. He's like, he's like, he really rises the line of like, you could believe this guy's walking son. Um, anyway, point is, uh, so yeah, Selena Kyle is, is the assistant. She finds out about the, uh, oh, sorry, I, I, sorry, I'll go back to what I was saying. Because I, I realise I've just said something and not resolved it. Yeah, so Max talks to uh, his son at one point going, uh, when he's giving the speech where he's giving out the Christmas presents and he's like, oh, I left my speech indoors. Uh, remind me to take it out on what's her name later. <laughs> which, um, <laughs> which I like. Um, yeah, so anyway, long story short, Batman foils this penguin gang, but the penguin's already abducted Max. And the penguin uh, is going to use Max uh, to kind of re- kind of get himself reacquainted to Gotham society. Um as it turns out, uh, because of Max's dodgy uh, policies regarding energy siphoning and ransoming thereof, uh, the mayor is not a fan of him. So he wants to replace the mayor with a stooge, and he chooses the penguin. Um, so Which that's is kind a of bold like that. Choice, given that a bold penguin choice. is a sewer dwelling. A filthy freak. sewer beast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Gotham City is kind of on the penguin side to begin with because he has a sob story about his parents abandoning him. Uh, Bruce is Bruce finds him suspect to begin with, but uh, but you know he he has some sympathy for him. But obviously, then later on, it turns out he's a wrong one. Um, basically, they use the Penguins gang to create chaos, uh, whilst also having you know to make it look like the current mayor's incompetent. It's it's a mayor sabotage thing. They also frame Batman for murder, so the city turns against Batman. Meanwhile, all this is happening. Uh, Selina Kyle finds out the. Max's naughty plans, and Max shoves her out of a window uh, to her death, where some cats come and lick her back to life. They lick Thoughts. and nibble her fingers until she wakes up, um, which I guess is scientifically accurate. Um, no one knows what that scene's about, not even Tim Burton. No. Um, I mean, it's a great scene. Up, I guess. It's very well. Uh, well, actually, to be fair, if you've watched um, Halle Berry's Catwoman, then you know. These cats are the uh, emissaries of the Egyptian cat goddess who picks uh, worthy women who have shown kindness to the feline community uh, but are killed in, um, shall we say, suspicious circumstances. Uh, This cat goddess chooses them to resurrect and seek their vengeance. So So it's like the crow, but way less cool. It is like the crow, and it is considerably less cool. Whereas um, I just like to think that the the street cats of Gotham know that Michelle Pfeiffer is a bad bitch, and you know a simple fall out of a window wouldn't kill her. I think that's what that is. They're trying to get. They're yeah. just going, "Come on, bitch, get up." That's what they're doing. Yeah. So anyway, Catwoman goes on her own rampage of revenge against society. Uh, she feels that she is downtrodden, and she's getting her her revenge. Batman foils her several times, so she ends up siding with the Penguin in his attempt to frame Batman for the murder of the Ice Princess. Don't worry about the ice princess. Um, <laughs> the movie sure doesn't. So. <laughs> but meanwhile, to the conflicts between Batman and Catwoman, Selina and Bruce have met because of Bruce's dealings with Max Shrek. Uh, they fall for each other. Um, because this Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman, we should underline this, he fucks. Oh yeah, he is a hound. Like He, he never out those stops. Truffles. 
He did, because no, barely any mention of Vicky Vale in this movie. He's already binned her off, mate. He, he had his way binned with her. Binned her off. Straight on, on your now he's on to the next one. She's gone now to take pictures of bats or something, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. She's <laughs> gone to jerk off to bats. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, listen. So <laughs> Enough about Kim Battinger frigging herself to bats. It all comes to a head. Um, the movie, I mean, not Kim basing it. Um, the... Uh, regardless we, uh, it all comes to a head Batman clears his name somewhat or at least proves that the penguin framed him uh, the penguin has is forced under the sewers Bruce and Selina figure out that each other are Batman and Catwoman uh, but oh no now the penguin's doing a weird revenge plan where he wants to kill all the firstborn sons of Gotham because <laughs> he's a maniac um, Batman foils this plan and so Penguin resorts to Plan C, which is rocket launching penguins invade Gotham. Which why um, that isn't Plan A, I don't know. It's an excellent. Point. If you've got rocket penguins, that's your fucking go-to, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, it all it all kind of comes to a point. The peng uh, so Batman foils the penguins' plan again, uh, resulting eventually in the penguins' death. Uh, Catwoman kills Max Shrek and dies in the process. Uh, Batman returns home, and the movie just kind of ends. <laughs> You've done a very good job of sort of condensing the plot because I think compared to the first Batman movie, there is a lot more going on in this one. Like it's yeah, it's yeah. telling more of a story. I think, and I think that might be one of the other reasons why I like it. And I know a lot of people complain that Batman and Bruce Wayne kind of get sidelined in favor of Penguin and Catwoman. I, I think but... they kind of do for the second act. Is the thing like they. Batman kind of disappears in the second act, but then kind of comes back for the third act. Uh, it is interesting because like Bruce Wayne's in it throughout, but I think Batman himself is kind of not as present as he was in the '89 movie. No, Batman is more present towards the third act. Yeah, like you yeah. see more of Bruce today. Say, like, as you say, you see more of Bruce in the second act. But also, you know, unlike the first movie, this has got three antagonists technically. I mean, Max Shrek definitely doesn't get as much screen time as what uh, the other two do. No. But he gets—he's kind of the puppet master. He's the instigator of all these different things. Well, yeah, he's the true antagonist. Like he is responsible for the Penguin's like recent run of like villainy that he does for the most part. Obviously, the Penguin was gonna do shit anyway. Shrek just kind of facilitates. But, yeah, him. but would have been less uh, successful if Shrek. Yeah, and involved. he's directly responsible for Selina Kyle becoming Catwoman. So, yes. and I, you know, I, one thing I do really like about this movie, and it's something that we've talked about previously, is that it is very much a movie about three creatures of the night, as it were. All, mm. you know, traumatized and beaten people who are just existing in mostly fetish wear, let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of about these people who have gone through these hideous traumas and kind of have these bizarre personalities that they retreat into. And it's kind of like they they kind of there's kind of three points on that triangle where obviously there's there's Batman Catwoman who's kind of you know he's a dark hero but he is heroic and then there's Catwoman who's kind of morally ambivalent she's she does bad things she does good things she's not necessarily super heroic but she's also not particularly villainous like she still has a morality when the Penguin kills the ice cream for example or the ice princess and uh, she says like oh you thought you said you were gonna scare her not kill her and um, you know, she doesn't seem. She doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world, but she's clearly, you know, criminal, clearly lashing out. Um, and then you have the penguin, 
obviously abandoned by his parents and that and kind of living this life in the sewer and kind of becoming this twisted sick creature and he's like the bad point of the triangle i guess yeah because that's kind of how i've always seen it is that like you've got batman and the penguin on sort of opposite sides and catwoman is very much in the middle penguin represents Mm. what she could become if she keeps lashing out and goes down that path but batman represents what she could be if she decides to rise above it and not give in to that and yeah there's a lot of good sort of morally gray things going on in this film and i think it explores a lot of really interesting ideas and still manages to be this insanely horny, weird, gothic nightmare of a film. <laughs> yeah. Which is quite a feat, yeah. like, to, to pull that off, I think. And I just kind of want to say to, about this movie as well, like, it, it's a tone that is very specific, but I think really works for a Batman story, this kind of, like, gothic uh, fairy tale, this kind of, like, dark fairy tale aspect that Burton brings out in this movie. And it's kind of interesting because it's, it's sitting alongside the, like, political machinations of uh, the penguin and Max Shrek. So you almost have this slightly uh, incongruous thing. But uh, yeah, the entire aesthetic is is so much stronger in this movie. Like it feels not as... Not that the first movie feels overly compromised, but like, for example, there's no Prince music in this. There's, kind of, yeah. there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing in this that is jarring to the Burton aesthetic. It all kind yeah. of... Yeah, and like Burton's aesthetic is really yeah. like on front and center here like you know his love for like german expressionism and stuff like that is really really at like the forefront his entire like the way that he dresses his characters that become a lot more sort of prevalent further down the line is here i think Mm -hmm. um with those sort of like outlandish outfits like penguin's outfit is pure tim burton um yeah yeah catwoman's look in this movie is iconic it's to to my mind it's the best catwoman look the whole like stapled up thing is just it's it's so cool yeah, and yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer looks the business in that outfit. She certainly does. She certainly does. Um, uh, many many people were uh, sexually awakened by Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. I, feel. I, I think I think I speak for both of us when I say that's yeah, that's us. Mm. I think uh, the the interpretation of Bruce Wayne. This is um, it's an interesting development from the first one as well because although he still has his compassionate side and like you get to see more of his kind of banter with Alfred and more of that. He definitely feels more aloof, even than the first one. And he, ha- he almost has this like slightly harder edge to his personality, like where he's straight up saying to Max Shrek, like, I'll fight you on this. You know, I'm not going to let you get away with this kind of thing. Um, and you also have one of the great Batman moments where he catches up to Shrek later on as Batman. And, uh, you know, Max Shrek has been, oh, thank God you're here to save me from Catwoman. And Batman just shoves him in the face and goes, shut up, you're in a jail. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, so he kind of has this, like, he is slightly more ruthless when he's fighting the uh, Penguin's goons as well. Oh, he straight up murders um, people in this film. Yeah, yeah, a couple of people he, he um, yeah, he does murk them for life. He like, <laughs> straps a bomb to a man at one point. Yeah, yeah, and he sets one guy on fire with the uh, Batmobile's, uh, like, flame Which engine. Which I know is obviously a big point of contention for a lot of Batman fans, because it's, it's, it's more of a modern idea, isn't it, that Batman doesn't kill? That's, like, his code of honour. Well, uh, yeah, because in, in the 30s original version, he, he literally had guns and shit, and, like, you know, he was more in line with the pulp heroes of that time. Yeah. Uh, since then, obviously, the rogues gallery has become a massive part of Batman, so I think the thing that's important to remember is the main reason the no kill rule exists is so that you don't have to kill the Joker, you don't have to kill Riddler. Yeah, like it's just it's taken as read that Batman would just take them back to Arkham. Yeah. T- Tim Burton, ha- however, did not get that memo because he is no. ruthless <laughs> with the villains in this movie. 
he doesn't just kill wantonly though. But like, yeah, there no. are there are moments. There are a couple of kill moments that now are a bit like bloody hell. Yeah, because um, <laughs> I, I I will post this on the social medias. Uh, I didn't get to mention this when we were talking about eighty nine, but I'm going to quickly mention it now. There's a TV cut that exists of eighty nine, where during the whole bit at the end where the Joker is on the the rooftop and he ends up falling off and such, there's a cut where it cuts all the stuff out where he's hanging off the edge of the helicopter. It literally has Batman punching him and then it just cuts to him falling to his death. And it's magical <laughs> and I need to try and find it so you guys can see it because it's... Batman just straight up just murders the Joker, just punches him off a building. Um, um, yes, but anyway, back to this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, we've kind of succinctly said a lot of stuff that we feel. I think one thing that I do want to shout out is um, obviously Danny Elfman's score is great again from the first movie and this one. Uh, I think here, I think in this one he's even more focused. Like this tone of like this kind of bombastic fitting, gothic yeah. tone. Yeah. Uh, obviously the the Danny Elfman score, which I think this is the last movie we actually hear the Batman theme from him because it changes composers for the the other two. Yeah, that that we should definitely shout out that incredible like the da 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 dan dan da 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 dan 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 like that is like the Batman music to me. It's, it's on par it's, with like the Star Wars music, isn't it? Just for how yeah, or, or the uh, yeah, or even the yeah the John Williams. Um, well, I guess the Star Wars is John Williams, but but yeah, it's up there with the John Williams stuff of like Rays of the Lost Ark or like um, the Superman theme that he did. I think in fact, yeah, I think that's the apt comparison where the the John Williams Superman theme there. Ba, 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 bam, ba, 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 you know the the yeah you know the, you know the thing um, we know the thing yeah it's so it so evokes Superman in that way that even if you hear it now it, even with years and years of other movies featuring Superman with different music like you still and like I think the Danny Elfman Batman theme has that quality where you could pre- pretty much put it on any Batman film. And, and it would, it would still fit. pretty yeah. much work, yeah. And it would, fit, and it would still pretty much evoke the character of Batman. Um, certainly, you could put it over the um, the Christian Bale movies, I think, and it would work. Uh, the Snyder movies, maybe not, because that's just yeah. Not grim. even Danny Elfman can save that, and that's saying something. <laughs> yeah, that's just like grim men punching each other and grunting in the rain. Um, but I mean, I think just like the overall presentation of this movie as well, like not only the Danny Elfman score, but like just the the you know the production design of this movie is incredible. Like, yeah, this movie leans even heavier into the sort of gothic noir overtone. Um, yeah, because like the Gotham City of the Tim Burton uh, movies is my, aside from the animated series, is probably my favorite version of Gotham. It feels very kind of yeah. lost to time. But also, you were saying about how in the Batman it's done with that like new sort of green screening technology that they use. I don't know what it's called, but you know what yeah. I mean. This movie very much feels like it's done on sets and with matte paintings, and it's a very deliberate look and style that yeah. I do kind of miss in filmmaking. You don't really get that anymore. Um, but yeah, there's like a deliberate artificiality to it. The kind of yeah, absolutely comic, comic bookiness. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one thing I will say about Batman Returns overall, especially when you compare it to '89, is that it definitely feels more comic booky, and I think it might be due to those sort of weird elements that Tim Burton puts into it. Um, mm. It's definitely more traditional Batman compared to '89, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should we get into the character rankings? Yeah, I think one thing we, we should um, mention, though, just because it's an interesting uh, curio, a bit of information about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's two things I want to mention before we get into the character rankings, and we've got time. Uh, first of all, yeah, we alluded to this earlier, but yeah, this movie became controversial among parents groups, mm-hmm. and um, Mackie D's, 
uh, in particular were criticised for having a, a Happy Meal tie-in uh, merch thing with this mm-hmm. uh, because the movie was seen as so dark and so violent and so um, sexual was another thing that people kept bringing into it because there is a lot of... I mean, this is the movie that features Penguin, Saints, Catwoman, just the pussy I've been looking for, for example. Yeah, uh, we also, also have he also, Catwoman bathing uh, <laughs> herself next to Penguin yes. whilst he just watches um you've also i mean side note before i finish this point that scene is fucking wild because that's also the scene where she eats the live bird and releases it michelle pfeiffer did legit put a live bird in her mouth for this movie yeah Um, it's not it's only in one shot that it's an actual live bird when she puts it in her mouth it's a it's a prop but when she opens her mouth and it flies out it is a real bird and again you don't get that in the mcu do you (laughs) No, that is fucking weird. Um, I mean, fair play to Fiverr, man. Like, she was into this role. Yeah, I mean, that. You know, I wonder if that bird shit in her mouth. Anyway, because um, <laughs> birds are just crap, whatever, right? But uh, anyway, that aside. <laughs> yeah, so Mackie's got really uh, uh, criticised for tying in with this movie to the point where they had to actually broadcast a TV advert apologising for their mistake, as they retracted the Batman Returns tie-in uh, line. Is that available online? I just think online? it's crazy. Look, uh, yeah, if it, is, if it is, I'll find it and I'll put it on the... Oh, uh, please do, because I'd love to see that. Facebook. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, okay. Uh, there was something else I wanted to mention, but it's escaped me. <laughs> still thinking about that bird shitting in Michelle Pfeiffer's mouth. <laughs> so, yes, the other thing to mention is, there is one character in this who was cast and was in the original script, but was removed before the movie shot, uh, will become immediately relevant in the uh, next couple of movies. Uh, there was going to be a Robin in this movie. Yeah, I heard about this, yeah. It was going to be... Uh, oh, let me... It was, it was one of Marlon Wayans, Wayans, wasn't it not? I believe it was Marlon Wayans. Let me just double-check that, because there's many of these Wayans. Uh, whilst you're doing the... Because, you know, we never do any research. Um, whilst you're checking well, I did out, research for the, for the last one, but I'm just free-balling at this time. Yeah, well, I mean, there's quite a few uh, instances with that um, in this movie as well, because, like, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer wasn't originally cast as Catwoman. It was Annette Bening uh, who had to... Uh, she had to step out of the movie because she felt pregnant, which it would be interesting yeah. to see her play Catwoman, but to me, Michelle Pfeiffer is honestly perfect in this movie. I can't mm. imagine this film with any so, other yeah, to, actress playing To Catwoman. confirm, it was going to be Marlon Wayans of the Wayans family tree. Um, I'm not sure if he would have been Robin in this movie or just for the end, but like, he was going to be introduced as a mechanic who, because uh, you know the Batmobile gets fucked up in this movie, I think the idea was he was going to be doing some repairs on, on the Batcave or the Batmobile and, um, you know, he'd have like the little Robin logo would be part of his like mechanic yeah, 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 kind yeah. of thing. Um, and like he would kind of go from there and then he'd be like Robin in the next movie. Or at the end of this movie, it's not entirely sure. But basically he was going to be Robin for the rest of the franchise. Um, so that's just another example that I want to point out. Uh, as much as people like to criticise Burton for his, um, shall we say, not particularly racially diverse casting these days, that's the second det- the second time in this franchise that Warner Bros. have stopped him from casting a black man in a role. <laughs> <laughs> because as we know, in the next movie, Harvey Dent is suddenly white, and uh, well, and Robin also also white yeah well, i mean you know burton you know wasn't uh but he didn't do the next one he was exec producer apparently no. he was like a 
Well, yeah. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. Let's do the, uh, let's do the character rankings. Yes. Uh, we've already talked about Batman. He's a 10. I do yes. like him a lot in this one. I love the first time you see him, where mm. Bruce is just sat in the dark, just sort of staring into nothingness, and the bat signal lights up. Because I'm just like, what was Bruce doing? Does he just sit around yeah. and wait for the bat signal? Just... Sitting in shadow, waiting for the bat signal. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, just thinking about how Vicky Vale's just, you know, frigging herself to bats or something, instead of him. Good lord. Uh, yeah, I think he, he's retaining the 10 from the previous uh, movie. Yeah. Um, if anything, I slightly prefer his performance here, even though I do think uh, Bruce slash Batman gets uh, sidelined a little bit. Yeah, but I yeah, think I... all of the scenes he has that he shares with, say, Catwoman and Penguin, are just great and yeah. you know keaton's got really good chem him and five have really good chemistry in this movie i think yeah 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 they're great um with that we could move into michelle pfeiffer's catwoman then i think i mean we've said a lot about her but since you just brought up the dynamic between her and bruce i want to flag up that i think one of the best scenes in this movie is um the scene where they're at the masquerade ball uh, first of all there's there's the uh, oh so clever direction note that they're the only two people not wearing a mask at the masquerade ball. There's the faces of the mask. We've seen Batman Begins. You get the idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the uh, yeah, but the direction of the moment where um, you know they repeat the dialogue they've had to each other as Batman and Catwoman. So you know she says uh, mistletoe's deadly if you eat it, and he says like but kiss is more deadly if you mean it, which they said the other way around as Batman and Catwoman. Yeah. So they realise that the other must be. Batman and Catwoman, respectively. I really love the way that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer plays that scene. Um, that look in her eyes when she's like, does this mean we have to fight now? Like, her whole sense of what's going on just crumbling around her. Um, it's directed really well as well, because it's those, like, close, those long close-ups on each of them kind of spinning around and then reversing the other way. It's just a good scene. Tim Burton doesn't direct well anymore, so I want to just flag up scenes where he has directed pretty well. Um, yeah, no, my favourite stuff with Catwoman in this movie is probably her the scene where she becomes Catwoman, um, yes. where she after she gets pushed out the window and the cats nibble her back to life, and then she goes back to her mm. apartment and has that entire thing where she just goes insane and smashes the place up and takes her like yeah. vinyl coat and turns it into the. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just. It's amazing. Even down to like the little details, like she has the neon sign that says "Hello there." That she breaks two of the letters and it says "Hell here," which I low key want yes. one of those on my wall. I that is that is crazy. Um, and it's just little details yeah. like that that I love. Um, and we have to also shout out at the very end um, where she goes full tilt, insane. Yeah, and you've got crazy haired Michelle Pfeiffer. Frenching Christopher Walken with a taser whilst also plugging herself into the national fucking grid. Yes. Which is wild. It's a wild scene. <laughs> um, yeah, and I do like, I like that scene as well because I like how fatalistic Catwoman is where she just sees it as like, you know, she has to kill Shrek, come what may, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the obviously where she Bruce, makes the choice, isn't it? Like, she yeah, chooses. Bruce gives to, her the option yeah. to come back with her and she rejects it. And we do, of course, find out she's alive at the end, that she hasn't used up her nine lives. Like, I do get um, that throughout the movie, that's a motif where she believes her, she has nine lives. And, like, up until then, when she keeps going, oh, Batman killed me, the Penguin killed me, like, she usually kind of just gets dropped through windows. Um, yeah, she's not actually dead. Yeah. yeah, like, I mean, I also do love that bit where the Penguin drops her through a window after attaching her to his umbrella, and uh, she crashes into a rooftop garden and sits up 
and screams, which shatters all of the other glass around her. Which yeah. is just again, that's a very that's a very Tim Burton esque uh, little yeah. moment, uh, which I love, and it's also very comic booky as well. Um, but yeah, and then like obviously Max Shrek shoots her a couple of times, yeah, and, like, a couple of times, the leg, yeah. <laughs> you know, and she keeps saying, "Oh, you know, six, seven. Then she does the electrocution thing, and I'm like, right, okay, how the fuck did she survive that? <laughs> like, that one I don't buy. <laughs> Nine lives, baby. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're both giving Michelle Pfeiffer a slash Catwoman a 10 out of 10. Oh, she gets a 20 out of 10, but she's she's yeah. one of the sole reasons that I that this is one of my favourite movies. Like, she's just yeah. incredible, and all, of, every, all the scenes involving her are incredible. Yeah, she's great. She's kind of the MVP of this movie. Yeah, the real kind of saving grace. And that's saying something when you've got like people like Christopher Walken and Danny DeVito on screen as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, speaking of DeVito, let's segue into Oswald Cobblepot the Penguin. It's a 10. Like, I'm just going to say yeah. that right now. Um, For me, it's an easy 10. And um, not just because Danny DeVito's great. I think you see the, the DNA of his Frank Reynolds in this. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> where he's just leaning into the kind of gross, filthy... Uh, you know, disgusting and just overtly sexually aggressive character, right? <laughs> but um, I think also, like, his commitment is is insane. Uh, he's so not... I think this is one of the great things about Danny DeVito in, in, DeVito in general, but in this movie, and as Frank in particular, like, that lack of vanity that he has as an actor where he's so willing to just commit to being as grotesque as possible. Um, one thing I will say that I don't think we covered uh, so far is that what I do like about this penguin is that although he is unequivocally, unequivocally evil, you do pity him somewhat. Yeah, there is an element yeah. of him where, you know, he was never really given a chance to blend in with society. I mean, his parents threw him into a sewer, as far as they knew, to his death. Uh, luckily for him, though, he was adopted by penguins. <laughs> Um, because the sewer goes under the <laughs> under the the, sh- the abandoned zoo. I love um, that so much. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, and I, I think you know the thing that one of the one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and indeed in any movie, is the penguin's final death scene, where he keels over, and mournful music from Danny Elfman plays as several emperor penguins <laughs> gently slide him into the sewer water. <laughs> Uh, like a funeral procession of these emperor penguins, and he just sinks into and like it's it's wild. You get this shot from like underneath the water as his corpse is like pushed in and floats for like under frame, and then there's just several penguins staring down <laughs> somberly. And I really appreciate that Burton didn't play that scene as a joke at all. No, it's very it's serious. entirely serious. Yeah. And like Batman watching watching Arthur. <laughs> You know, well, it's so good. Well, I think Burton doesn't play any of it as a joke. He he treats these characters with a yeah. lot of respect and treats them very seriously. And yeah, I think like that's the humor comes from works. the from dialogue and things like that. But and like, kind of the overall absurdity yeah. of it, really. I think. But yeah, he commits to the the psyche the psychology of these characters. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, bearing that in mind, I think let's give. Uh, I'm going to give Oswald Cobblepot, aka the Penguin, a ten out of ten. Absolutely. I mean, it's a huge deviation from what the character was initially, but I really like this version of the character, and I think they did something very different. And Devito just is. He's a joy to watch, and just how vile yeah. he is in this film. Like he ate that fish for real. Like Michelle Pfeiffer put a live yeah. bird in her mouth. Devito ate a raw fish. A stanky raw fish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Burton gets results, is what we're saying. 
Okay, and let's. Um, I don't think there's any other characters we really need to Max cover. Shrek other than Max Shrek. Yeah. So let's go. Christopher great. Walken, Max Shrek. Yeah, I mean Walken's great in general. I think he's he's an unexpected joy in this movie. Whenever I watch it, because um, obviously he's kind of you kind of think of Max Shrek as being like, oh yeah, he's just sort of like this villainous character who's kind of in the background, but he lends so much to the movie. He plays it so straight as well. This thing of like um being this uh this evil businessman but also you know i like his kind of slightly bemused his kind of greasy personality like you see it with the penguin where he kind of manipulates him round to like well if you come work for me you know all this kind of stuff um you see it in the scene with bruce where he's trying to manipulate him but it's not quite working um you know i, I think he has the, he's a really interesting character uh, considering that he's just on paper he's just businessman who's catalyst for the plot right yeah he but, just sort of you know grooms these you know people that have been traumatized and sort yeah. of puppeteers all of this stuff it's yeah it's um yeah i think you're right on paper that character is kind of dull but walken really imbues it with this not like sleazy energy but there's mm. there's something very very sinister about him yeah yeah he knows he knows exactly what he needs to do to make this character shine and yeah, he he play yeah he plays that manipulative thing to a T. I mean, this is essentially a movie about a capitalist industry manipulating broken people for its own ends, and how that just results in literally everyone apart from Batman dying. So yeah, and that's why this is my favorite Batman movie because it really does have something to say. I think <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> and it, pretty based, and it also has you know Michelle Pfeiffer with a live bird in her mouth. So. Yeah, which is always good. It's so, yeah, I think you Max... can have everything. So I think Max Shrek, ten out of ten. Yeah, absolutely. He also gets um, he's also privy to one of my favourite lines in the movie, uh, which is at the end where he says, "Bruce Wayne, why the hell are you dressed up as Batman?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he which, is Batman, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> and then he just goes, "Was Batman?" and shoots it, which is <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so great. The dialogue, it's a great really sequence popped. of lines. Yeah, it really, really yeah. Movie. So I think we kind of. Um, we forgot to do this for Batman 89, so let's just do it for, for both the Burton ones now. Um, on our patented scale of um, whatever it is for these episodes, Batastic, Jokerific, ooh, Catwoman, or um, Alfred. No, it's... Um, <laughs> no, the rating system is good, good but I hate it, shit, shit but I like it. But And also, in theme, I feel like we could go with Batman 89, Batman Returns, <laughs> Batman Forever, <laughs> Batman Robin. <laughs> well, not to give the game away too early, but um, pretty much, yes. No, this um, is, I mean, 89 is um, is great. I mean, what were we saying for great? Good. Jokerific? No, we're just saying, just stick to the thing. The bits I like. I mean, they're both great. Like, they both are great. But of the two... Batman Returns is the better movie, in my opinion. There's a lot more going yeah, on. It's more visually distinctive. Um, it's it's also one of those things as well where, like, you know, when the the, the age old discussion comes up of people going, "There are no sequels better than the original." I'm like, um, well, yes, there are because Batman Returns exists. Yeah, yeah. I think it has the um, although it's a very different movie tonally to this. I think it has the same thing that um, the Dark Knight kind of has in a lot of people's minds, where the first one is a very solid bedrock. And then the yeah. second one is like they they punt it into the stratosphere and they really lead into their specific vision, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely say that's a very apt comparison because the you know 
the Dark Knight is Nolan really kind of mm. sinking his teeth into these characters, and this is exactly what Batman Returns is. This is yeah. this is what a real Tim Burton Batman movie is, and it's weird and gross and horny, and it's exactly what I want in a Batman movie. Mm, I agree. Although I'm actually kind of at a point in listeners where I'm, I'm starting to think maybe I like Batman Begins more than The Dark Knight, but that's that's another story. That's another baby, story for another. That day. is spicy. We'll get to that when we cover the Nolan movies. But um, well, what I'll say to that is, as a pre, as a bit of precom, um, they're both five star movies in my book. I think when I think about it now, I'm kind of like Batman Begins is maybe a better Batman film, and The Dark Knight is maybe a better film overall. I, I think feel that's, like yeah, I think that's pretty out because I mean I do. I don't know, I'm not going to tip my hat too early on talking about these, but like I really do think the Dark Knight is a is a great movie. Yeah, it's um, amazing. Like I'm not going to fucking be like yeah, no, Dark absolutely. Shit, I think it's just like for me, um, in terms of what I want and what I like in a Batman story, like I do think the Nolan movies they they do take themselves a little bit too seriously. Um, yeah. Especially when you consider the Dark Knight is literally a movie about a man in a rubber bat costume beating up a bloke dressed up as a clown. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. give me a bit more weirdness with that. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, but no, great movie, five star movie. I don't want to <laughs> anger the Nolanites. I've already done that enough in my time. Well, it's not the Nolanites that you need to worry about these days. It's the Reeves heads. That's true. The, oh, well, the Nolanites have been that. never leaving. They're... No, no, no the, the Nolanites would actually come after you. The the Reeve whatever. No, mate, Reavers. I've seen I've seen the Reavers go after people. Mate, they need to leave their basement before they can come after me. <laughs> the Reavers have been going after people, mate. I've seen it happen. Yeah, I know, because the they're, they're, they're treating... They're doing what the A24 stands do, and it's a whole yeah. load of movie discourse that I just can't be It's these about. fucking Gen Z motherfuckers who are like, actually, The Dark Knight was bad, and it's probably misogynistic. Like, <laughs> I'm being glib there. But you know that thing that no, no, Gen Z... No, it's, it's pretty, pretty on point. I mean, obviously, we do sound yeah. like old man yells at cloud. But, but this is just a trend that I don't like, where where when people look back on an old movie that's like considered a classic, they go, "Actually, it's quite problematic, so it's bad." It's like, shut up, like yeah, that's, by, by all that's means, by all means, discourse. by all means, analyze that stuff and point it out. I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting don't, but like, come on now, like you're really gonna turn around and be like. Dark Knight's not a good movie, actually. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, the, I always find the argument of people saying that this movie has content that is definitely like unsavory and inappropriate these well, days, and they automatically badly, say, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, therefore means is bad. Is like that's fucking stupid. That's honestly the, stupid. Right. This is a tangent before, but, but it's a brief one. One of the best ones of these I saw was some some uh, what I assume to be Gen Z folks. They're saying they you know, they'd never even really seen The Godfather before, right? They were talking about The Godfather and saying. All the characters in this are like so misogynist. They're so obsessed with this like toxic idea of masculinity. Ergo, the movie's bad. And I wanted to be like, sorry, did you think the message of that movie was actually it's pretty great to be the Godfather? Did you think? <laughs> did, did you watch that and think it was saying you should do this? Because did, did you go not... into that movie about criminals and mob bosses <laughs> and expect a wholesome progressive message? Is that what well, you thought? This is it though. It's not even about the because the message is like this is a bad way to be like this this you know this culture of toxic masculinity is bad. It's, okay, nobody in the movie turns around and says that to the camera, but like you're yeah. supposed to infer that from the things that happen in yeah, the like, film. This is not something to aspire to. Okay, yeah, uh, this is not something to be celebrated. Fucking yeah, I've also that. seen some interesting takes about the Northman where people think that it's like a white supremacist film that. Over that, like, yeah, that, like, I also uh, bolsters to... the like, yeah. 
I also want to say that's fucking stupid as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the point in The Northman where Alexander Skarsgård turned to the camera and went, good movie. Oh, it just went, good way to live. It's not even, <laughs> is it not even Alex Skarsgård? It's one of the Skarsgårds. I don't know. They're like the Wayans at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Northman was pretty good, though. I liked, I liked the Northman. It was, it was. None of this is making it into the pod, by the way. Um, shall we uh, call a break real quick and replenish yes. our drinks and so forth? Yeah, I'm going to okay. get myself a quick drink and I'm going to um, turn the light on. Let's see what okay, cool. Yeah, so we move on to Batman Forever, which comes out in 1995, I want to say. Five. Now, Warner Bros., they want a, a gentler, more kid-friendly uh, movie that can help them shift merchandise units. So, they call Tim Burton into a meeting. Uh, to discuss Batman 3. And Burton is there, and this is a story that he tells fairly often. Um, Burton is there giving them ideas, saying, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, or maybe Riddler, maybe get Billy D back for Two-Face, blah, 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 blah. And every suggestion that he makes to the Warner Bros. execs at the time is met with a response to the effect of, but wouldn't you rather be doing your smaller movies, your indie movies, your, more your own thing? And uh, eventually Burton just goes, you don't want me to make this movie, do you? And of course they go, no, no, of course we do, of course we do, of course we do. And he just leaves the meeting. So Burton is out of the frame. Uh, they go through a few different directors, but they eventually end up at Joel Schumacher. Now, Michael Keaton was willing to come back for Batman Forever. But uh, he says after one meeting with Joel Schumacher that Schumacher just basically didn't get it. And kept repeating, uh, why does everything have to be so dark? Why does it have to be so dark? which Keaton uh, could not relate to. Uh, he will kind of say as well that, um, at the time anyway, because we know he is returning to the DC uh, movie universe uh, soonish. Um, at the time, he was kind of saying he would prefer it to be Burton, but uh, if anyone came with an interesting take, he, he would be willing to hear them out sort of thing. Um, but he didn't find Schumacher's vision to be all that relatable to his version of Batman. So he also walks. So... This is kind of the already troubled beginnings of Batman Forever. Uh, and there were many people posited for the for the role of Batman, blah, 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 blah. But we don't really need to get into that. Because we arrive at Val Kilmer, who's taken over the role of Bruce uh, Wayne and Batman. Uh, this movie also uh, reintroduces the character of Two-Face, who is no longer played by Billy D. Williams, and is played by Tommy Lee Jones instead. Um, yeah... This is where the notion that these movies are supposed to be kind of in the same continuity starts to fall apart. I mean, we still have Michael Goch, and we still have um, Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon. But yeah, apart they're very so, much the, the sort of paste keeping the wallpapers on the walls at this point, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, um, M and Money play, Penny being played by the same actors, even though Bond changes. It's that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so... This movie is a drastic change of pace away from Batman Returns. They are course-correcting hard. Um, not only is it lighter in tone, sillier in tone, almost returning to the uh, tone of the 60s TV show, uh, almost, um, we get this thing where, you know, there are several different Batsuits, the cars are 
you know, the Batmobile's been redesigned. Uh, there's all this stuff with, you know, there's all these gadgets and all these different costumes. And it's very transparently designed to sell action figures, this movie. Yeah, everything's very garish in this film mm. as well. Like, everything looks like an action figure. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, I really don't care for the visual style of this film, for the most part, at least. Cause yeah, because Gotham City is now neon-drenched. Yeah, not in a good way. Not in like a Nicholas Winding Refn way. Or like no, which would be which way. would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, instead, Gotham City is yeah bad neon and very poor CGI. And yes, I know this was ninety five, which means you mm. know you can forgive it to a degree, but this is not a particularly visually appealing film, is what I would say. Which is, I think the reason why that stands out to me more is because the two Burton movies are so visually distinct and like really quite nice to look at, despite you know the more horrific elements. This movie is not a pretty movie to look at. And it sort of pains me to say that, because I remember as a kid, alongside Batman Returns, this was the one that I kind of dug the most. And yeah, so I, I liked this again, one as a kid quite a bit. I mean, I liked both the Schumacher ones as a kid quite a bit. Um, I think returning to it as an adult, you do, especially when you're a bit more versed in the art of cinema. Um, yeah, there's definitely... I think one of the things that makes this movie not look all that appealing is the manner in which it's shot. There's so many Dutch angles and everything's kind of there's there's no um there's no panache to the directing really. And that's not to slag off Joel Schumacher. I mean he's someone with a varied career, let's say, but he's made some quite good movies, you know, he made and like I think building up to this you have things like The Lost Boys, which you kind of see where, you know, his direction there would lead into to Batman perhaps. Um obviously he'd made Falling Down before this, I think. We did cover this last time. I believe so. Yeah, Falling Down's 93, so yeah, it's before this. So in fact, it's the movie he made before this, I think. like That, this was his la- that was his last movie, which is crazy to think about. But um, <laughs> yeah, and he made like so St. Elmo's Fire and all these other movies. Like, he, he tends towards uh, melodrama, I think it's safe to say. Like Falling Down is kind of a melodrama, as much as it's a black comedy as well. Um, yeah, and I feel like you could apply that to the characters in Batman. But, yeah, I actually think on paper Schumacher makes a lot of sense as a choice for Batman. Yeah, it's just a shame that pretty much all of the decisions that were made as a result of that are not really the correct ones, if you ask me. Yeah, and a lot of that, in fairness, is the fault of WB. Um, there is a, according to myth and legend, there is a cut of this movie which um, is more in line with Joel Schumacher's original vision. Uh, so, um, yeah, so the the whole subplot of Batman being in therapy would have been a much larger part of, of Bruce Wayne being in therapy, I should say, would have been a much larger part of the movie, and there would have been more of the kind of, um, you see a little bit of it where he relives his parents' funeral at one point. Yeah. Um, there would have been more of that stuff where it kind of goes into his psyche and you get these flashbacks of his life leading up to him being Batman and stuff like that. Um, which I think would have been kind of a nice contrast because actually uh, the sequence where he kind of regresses into his past is kind of shot like a meatloaf video, but it presents like, <laughs> uh, you know, there's all this kind of flowing uh, linen curtains and this kind of like heavy blue lighting and stuff. But it definitely feels more of a piece with the Burton stuff. And I think having more of that in this movie would have bridged the gap a bit more. And also just like it would have frankly given Val Kilmer more to do. 
Cause... Yeah, because he really gets shafted in this one. I yeah. think. Which is a shame because a lot of people talk smack about Val Kilmer, but like he's he's okay as Bruce Wayne. His Batman is pretty on point. Like Yeah, I like I like his Batman, yeah. He's kind of, the vocal performance is very much uh, aping uh, Kevin Conroy, I would say. Uh, yes, who by Batman this time was uh, yeah. just come out around mm. this time, I believe. Yes. Yeah, um, and it's a very similar kind of performance, and I like that. I mean, it's just a shame as Bruce Wayne, he doesn't really get a whole lot to do. He does get paired alongside Nicole Kidman, however. Yes, as Doctor Chase Meridian, an original character to this movie. And um, I feel as if, despite this movie moving away from the Tim Burton films and the inherent darkness, Schumacher kept the horny stuff. Oh, but for sure. Really, really emphasised that. Yeah, because this is the movie where nipples start to make an appearance on the Batsuit. It's true. The, this is also the first movie where we have the Schumacher montage of when Batman is suiting up and there is a, a shot of those tight little bat buns. Yes, you get crotch and ass as Batman. You get crotch ass and up. ass in this movie. Which you simply also... would never these days. <laughs> yeah, you just the audacity. Um, yeah. And then on top of that, you've got Nicole Kidman as Chase Meridian, who is the horniest character... Like, yeah. she, from the word go, is like, I want bat dick. I'm getting bat dick. Yes. Watch me go get bat dick. I mean, she and uses she... the bat, she uses the bat light to, the bat signal, I should say, to uh, get Batman to turn up for a booty call, which is frankly outrageous. But also, fair play to you. Like, she yeah. is a woman who knows what she wants, and she knows how to get it. She just turns on oh. that bat symbol and dons some very, very fetching lingerie, and she, she sets about business, and I respect Yes, her. she is a terrible psychologist, we should say, because that is, that is just not cricket. No, but, it's um, unethical to the, the worst degree. <laughs> but, uh, yes, as she, she herself says, there's something about an anatomically correct sculpted rubber suit, which... Um, I think it was Schumacher talking through the characters, to be honest. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. we should we should briefly run down the plot of this movie, um, such as it is. So Batman is battling Two-Face in general. Two-Face is already running amok in the city at the start of this movie. Dr. Chase Meridian is brought in to, um, I guess, help Batman because she's an expert in duality and Two-Face has a split personality. This is something that obviously draws Bruce to her. Because he too has something of a split personality. You see where we're going with this. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, as uh, uh, well, actually, so hang on. Edward Nigma is introduced, working for Wayne Enterprises. He's interested in creating mind control devices for reasons that I can't quite remember. Um, Bruce is like, "Don't do that. That's not a good idea." Edward Nigma, because we should say Edward uh, directly goes to Bruce at the uh, to the chagrin of his uh, of his director boss, goes straight to straight to the top, um, and Bruce is like, no, that sounds bad, don't do that. Uh, Edward Nigma is furious, and we should say played by Jim Carrey. I don't think we've mentioned this yet. It's played furious to the back rows by Jim Carrey. Yeah, uh, becomes the Riddler, kills his old boss, uh, teams up with Two Face to take Batman down. Um, along the course of the movie, uh, Two Face kills uh, young Dick Grayson's parents. Although I say young Dick Grayson, 
I think, what's he called, Chris O'Donnell? I think he was like 28 when they made this movie. Um, yeah, which he's leads... like, he is full on 13 going on 30 in this movie, isn't he? Yeah, and he's... then st- still gets adopted by Bruce Wayne, which is hilarious. Where yeah. Bruce is just like, I'm going to adopt this adult man. Who's going to stop me? I'm a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> Money talks, gimme him. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know he finds out through convoluted means that Bruce is Batman, wants to help him, um, the whole thing comes to a head with, uh, well, there's an invasion of Wade Manor by the by the villains. Uh, they take Chase Meridian and uh, eventually, uh, do they take Alfred hostage as well? They must do. Or do they just knock him out? It's one or the other, really, isn't it? They knock him out. I can't remember if they take him hostage. Oh, no, they don't, because they kidnap Chase Meridian and um, they then also, because uh, at that point, Batman's like, oh, yeah, all right, you can be Robin and join me. Um Robin then also gets taken hostage at the end, so he has to choose between his sidekick as Batman or his love interest as as, uh, as Bruce. Um, because we should say, Edward Nigma creates the weird brain-sucking television device to make himself more intelligent, and he begins, he begins to sell it as a product. So he's mainlining the brainwaves of everyone in Gotham, um, which somehow makes him more intelligent. Don't worry too yeah, much about I'm just, that. I just want to go on the record as saying that that whole plotline is really dumb. Yeah, I mean, I this movie's pretty dumb it. in general. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> anyway, long story short, uh, <laughs> Two-Face is murdered by Batman, even, yeah. even though Batman was like, don't kill Two-Face to Robin. Yeah. Because like, like, there's literally a scene where, where Bruce is like, I know what it's like for your whole life to become revenge. Don't kill Two Face. You become just like him. Then at the end of the movie, Batman straight up murders Two Face. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> just... I... <laughs> which is kind of hilarious. Uh, the Riddler gets taken to uh, Arkham Asylum, but luckily for everyone involved, he can't really remember that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And even if he did, he's so insane at this point that no one would believe him anyway. Uh, Robin becomes Batman's sidekick on a long term basis. They both run towards the camera with the bat, like, with the bat signal behind them. Uh, end of movie. So this movie is a garbled mess. Yeah, um, it, it really is, and not a. Well, I think on the one hand it is kind of enjoyable, but it's also a very frustrating film. I think. Yeah. You definitely see shades of what Schumacher was trying to do in the movie, like you say, that sort of flashback to the funeral is really quite well done and as i say we obviously know that there's an a supposed extended cut of this film that exists somewhere out there uh, or at least there, there's somebody scenes. uh somebody at wb very recently said there's enough footage to make a cut essentially and oh, some yeah. of the unlike some of this stuff ha- like, like there are deleted scenes available that show uh, like on the dvd and stuff that do show um some of the stuff that uh, schumacher wanted to do in this regard yeah, because there is the, the probably the most famous deleted scene, which you mentioned to me the last time we attempted to record this, and I've since watched it because I thought it sounded quite interesting, uh, where adult Bruce Wayne is in the cave and a human-sized bat approaches him. Uh, that scene's quite cool, actually. It feels a bit more in line with the Burton movies. Uh, and I liked it a lot. It's a shame that there's not more of that kind of stuff in the film. Yeah, um, the more psychological it's... elements, yeah. Yeah, instead the film dedicates a lot more of its screen time to Jim Carrey just, you know, piss-arsing about. Yeah, and we should say, Jim Carrey, I think we're both on the same page here, pretty insufferable in this movie. 
Yeah, it's as a kid found him really quite enjoyable in this. As an adult, mm. he's very grating. I think. I mean, he's definitely trying to channel Frank Gorshin from the '60s show, uh, who obviously played the Riddler there and kind of, kind of actually turned the character around because before that, the Riddler was sort of a, it was definitely a C tier Batman villain who'd only been in a couple of stories. But then, like, from the popularity of the '60s show and specifically his performance as the Riddler, like he became one of the A tier. Gotham villains kind of thing. Um, so he's definitely that definitive performance that uh, Carey is reaching for, but not getting at all, because he doesn't seem to grasp like what made that performance work was, yes, there's the ham and the over-the-top and all the rest of it, but also he can dial it back and become more sinister and become more threatening. And that thing of, as soon as his ego is questioned, the Gorshin Riddle like, turns on a dime to being like, right, fuck it, I'll just kill you then. It's, it's very much like Nicholson's Joker, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like, obviously it's played for laughs in the 60s show for the most part. But, you know, there is that character that you could build into a more serious take here. But I think Carrie's just more interested in, like, winning the scenes that he's in. He's just yes. likes to... Again, it's, it's... Especially when you consider that him and Tommy Lee Jones have quite a famous, like, rivalry on this movie. And a lot of their yes. time together on screen is just spent trying to out-ham one another. And it just becomes yeah. really quite exhausting towards the end. Yeah, and we should say Tommy Lee Jones had beef with Carey from day one. Uh, which Carey believes is to do with uh, one of his films. I think Ace Ventura beating uh, one of Tommy Lee Jones' films at their box office. Um there is the anecdote that every podcast that discusses this movie touches on, which we'll just touch on now, where um, supposedly Tommy Lee had just been seething the entire time they'd been working together. And one night he was in a restaurant with his family and Carrie and his entourage came in and, um, you know, he kind of came over, hey, Tommy, you know, giving it all that. And apparently Tommy Lee Jones just stood up, embraced uh, Carrie in a tight hug and just said into his ear, I hate you. I truly hate you. I cannot sanction your buffoonery. (laughs) (laughs) Which is... Your buffoonery. Which I think is obviously... It's one of the immortal lines of uh, showbiz beefery, I think. That that choice of words, like, that speaks volumes, Mm. I think. Like, that shows just how much he just wanted to murder Jim Carrey. (laughs) And I'll say this. um, I think Tommy Lee Jones is pretty bad in this movie as well. I think the scenes where he's not with Jim Carrey are better, but as soon as they're put together, they're just trying to one-up each other. Yeah, uh, bec- I think... Become, I think, and not in a fun way. Yeah, I think Tommy Lee Jones gets some decent bits, to, especially more towards the beginning when it's just the bit where Batman's trying to foil his robbery attempt. Because like that scene's yeah. kind of okay. Um, the action scenes are definitely a step up from the Burton movies, because... You know the sort of fight choreography in the the two previous movies was not really that important an aspect for the most part. No. Really, uh, this movie tries to go a little bit bigger in that sense. Um, and Two Face is kind of okay in that bit. You know, he does the whole sort of duality of Madman and sort of Sane Man fairly well. Uh, the main thing I can't get over is I just think his design in this film is ridiculous and looks yeah. really really bad. They're trying to recreate the like classic comic book Two Face, where he has the like, the kind of weirdly purple skin. So I guess that it's not too like horrific for children to look at. Which, by the way, um, I respect the big balls on Christopher Nolan for being like, actually, I think Two Face should be disgusting to look at. In the dark, like, night. A, like an actual burn victim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, the ver- just fun fact. I know we're not on the Dark Knight podcast, but 
the version of Two Face you see in The Dark Knight, that's what they did to tone it down. Yeah, originally, I've heard about this. I know originally they had a prosthetic that was like really realistic burn victim stuff, and WB just went, Chris, you absolutely cannot use that. That's that's revolting. And so he had to be like, well, okay, why don't we use CGI to make it nasty? <laughs> you know, they just, yeah. By the way, get ready for more of that. I don't know why my Christopher Nolan impression is Joanna Lumley, but get ready for more of that in uh, season two, episode one. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, anyway, to round about to this, yeah, he, yeah, his makeup of it is, it's kind of got that thing where the two-faced side of his face doesn't move that much, yeah. so it doesn't look very convincing. And that's the problem with Two Faces. Like in a comic book, it it kind of makes sense, but like in real life, it's hard to it's hard to realize that, I guess. Yeah, and I think Nolan does a better job of that with um, his yeah. take on the character because it is more realistic and yeah. it feels more grounded, I guess. Uh, but also, like he can move both sides of his mouth, which is kind of <laughs> essential. Yeah, um, I mean there, are, there there is some fun stuff with Two Face in this movie, like uh, how he's got his two uh, sort of mistresses, one of whom is played by Drew Barrymore. Um, mm. where the, the my favourite scene is where he's about to have dinner and he's got two sides of a dinner table um, where one is like you know qu- like fancy quail's eggs and shit and then the other side is like a fucking like full roasted hog or something uh, I like that how scene much is this, how much is this guy eating though that's the yeah, question literally. he's eating two meals a day and they continue on that motif throughout the rest of the movie like whenever he's got anything like a cigar or like cigarettes he's always got one in each hand and he always always yeah. got like two different types of wine and so and I, I admire that they keep that going throughout the film because that's kind of funny yeah um, I kind of wish they'd leaned into it more though like I think if you want a hammy two-faced the way you surely go is you have the Harvey Dent side who's kind of like no please don't hurt people blah, blah, blah. and then you have the, the two-faced side being like yeah fuck you I kill people and suck cocks all day like, you know, the, they, they could have done something with that where he's constantly flipping between the two. Yeah, and, and that like, could that have also been, opens yeah. it up for sort of interesting camera work because you could frame that really well, which again, yeah. this movie does not seem particularly uh, enamoured with the idea of it looking quite nice. I think it's... Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite, quite an ugly movie. Because <laughs> the thing with Two-Face is he's kind of an interesting character that's been reinterpreted over the years. Obviously, the most famous kind of reinterpretation is this the long halloween yeah um, where you get to see his which is kind of what nolan bases his two-face on to some extent it's like you get to see the descent the descent from harvey dent into the madman and that one kind of underplays the split personality a little bit or it kind of it plays with it in that and dark victory the sequel to the long halloween where you do get the two sides but there's always an ambiguity between how much they're actually two sides and how much they're the same person but he kind of used like he kind of uses the two faced persona to justify his actions and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then obviously in the in the Dark Knight you have Two Face where it's literally like he's a good guy with a bit of a dark side, and then post accident he's just off the deep end, off the rails, on a killing spree. And they kind of they don't do the split personality so much, they just do it as like he just embraces the dark side and goes insane. Um yeah. In this one, I don't really know what the take on Two Face is. Well, it's just kind of like he... unlike the Tim Burton movies, we don't really spend a whole lot of time with the villains. I mean, Jim Carrey gets a lot more screen time because we see his like mm. you know his fall and his turn into the Riddler. Whereas at the start of the movie, Tommy Lee Jones just is 
Two-Face. Like, he's just yeah. there already. He's established there's no explanation or anything. He's just there in full costume. And, like, and they, they do, really flash, they do flashbacks. They have the... Um, I say flashback. They they have the moment where there's, like, a news report or something that kind of recaps uh, Harvey Dent was the district attorney. He gets acid thrown in his face. I want to flag then, that up for one reason, because the shot of Bruce Wayne in full Batman regalia leaping over the table yeah leaping over the stand is so funny so he was just sat there sat there as batman the whole time (laughs) i love that and again there's little moments of like humor which i think that must be intentional like that's got to be intentionally funny gag i like stuff like that kind of works for me but overall this movie just has a very bizarre tone that doesn't really scream batman i think that's that's kind of the main problem this movie doesn't really scream batman to me yeah, it's yeah. It's like a, a sort of very compromised version of it. I, I get that it's trying to maybe ape the 60s series and it's sort of going back to that Silver Age stuff again, but it, just, it really doesn't it, work. It doesn't work because I don't think Schumacher has a take on the material either way. And like when you hear interviews about his movies, one thing that people always flag up is they say, like, uh, you know, when he was making these two movies, he kept saying, oh, we're making a comic book, we're making a comic book, in this kind of dismissive way of, like, whenever actors would come to him and be like, so what's my motivation, all this? He'd kind of be like, what do you mean motivation? You're a comic book villain, get on with it, kind of thing. Yeah, so like, it's all just yeah. silly, it's all, it doesn't, nothing matters, is what he's trying to say there. Yeah, and I think that kind of shines through, because, like, no one's motivations really make any sense in this movie. Um and maybe that kind of sounds like a silly thing to say about this kind of film, but like when you go back to what we were saying about Returns, you clearly understand the psychology of all the characters in that film. And it's yeah. clearly trying to, as much as it is this outlandish, uh, almost fairy tale esque setting, you do understand what the characters want, why they're doing what they're doing, why they are the way they are. Whereas in this, you don't really. And, no. you know, I mean, I know there would have been more expansion on Bruce Wayne, but like. Again, even from what I know of the Schumacher cut, such as it is, the Bruce Wayne and that is very much just like, I'm obsessed with the death of my parents, and I'm not sure if I want to be Batman or not. And it's kind of like, okay, well, we knew that. <laughs> like, Yeah, and so I think, you know, what really lets this film down, because there are fun elements, and certainly yeah. compared to Batman and Robin, I think this is actually quite an entertaining film, despite its many, many flaws. Yeah, I think what kind of what kind of stops it from being like a great movie is there is that slight disconnect from the material either played seriously or played humorously by Schumacher. Because that's one thing I will say, the 60s show very much has a take on the characters even if it's camp and if it's silly and all the rest of it. Like like Adam West can tell could well, god, you know, god rest his soul. Adam West could have told you why he made all the acting choices he did. And a lot of it's cuz he thought it'd be funny, but like he has an idea of what Batman is, even if it's not the idea that we currently subscribe to. And I think that's something that really, in these two Schumacher movies, where they are kind of compared to the um, the 60s show, I think that's where they kind of fall short. Like, the quality of writing isn't there. The understanding of the characters isn't there. And it just kind of becomes action figures slamming against each other, you know? Yeah, I think the comparisons between the Schumacher movies and the 60s show are very, very surface level. It's just, oh, the Schumacher movies were kind of campy, weren't they? Oh, the 60s show was kind of campy. It's like, the 60s show was camp, but it was more than that. There was a lot more going on beneath the surface. It wasn't just camp for the sake of camp, and it's not just a comic book, as Schumacher would put it. With all that said, Mark, uh, let's 
talk about our character rankings for this movie before we breeze on to Bateman and Robine. So, Val Kilmer as Batman. I think it's... Um... I'm going to give him like a solid six. I think he's good as Batman. He doesn't really get nearly enough to do as Bruce Wayne. So I think his performance is a bit like there isn't really much to, to grab onto. So yeah, I'm going to yeah. give him a six. I, I think I'm there with you. I think a six. I think it could have been higher, but what we're left with in this version of the movie just doesn't, doesn't work for me. It doesn't really amount to anything. You know, people can say that in Batman Returns, yeah. like, you know, Michael Keaton is absent for a fair bit of that movie, but like whenever he is in it, he does actually show up and do something, and you know he's he's in, he's interesting to watch at least, and he's given good material to work with. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so, what about Chris O'Donnell as Robin, the thirty-year-old wonder? <laughs> uh, it's like a three for me. It's this is not what I think of when I think Robin. It's just really not that character. No. No, I think the fact that he is just an adult man makes it so weird to watch. I know maybe there's like, well, th- there definitely is a convention in eighties and nineties and and possibly before that where like teenagers are played by by grown ups who with youthful looks. But I think O'Donnell just like it doesn't work for me. He's not boyish enough to be Robin. I just don't think I just don't think it really works. He's, he's quite all. wooden like, as well. I think. Yeah. You know. Um, the, oh yeah, his, his acting is piss poor. This, yeah, he gets know? like one I or mean, two. It gets it gets worse. Get it gets worse. worse. Yeah. He gets like one or two fun moments. I think the the scene where he's like putting away his washing and is doing all the martial arts shit is kind of fun in like a goofy way. But other than that, <laughs> I disagree. But there we go. I know. I just like um, Alfred the entire time. I just look at him like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I think, yeah, he's pretty bad. I think I'm going to give him a four. Because I want, I want some space to go lower for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chase Meridian um, is next. Uh, Chase Meridian... Uh, I don't even know, because the character is, is, is... She's just a horny therapist, but yeah, it's, it's played by Nicole Kidman. And to be and, honest, if Nicole Kidman was my horny therapist, I'd be fine with that. So, ten. Yeah, and, and this is, you know what, this is Nicole Kidman at the height of her smoke show powers, so I'm going to also say 10. For, for, and look, these ratings don't have to be based on anything of substance, we just both think Nicole Kidman's fit in this movie, that's that's what it boils and, down you know, to. know, she's bringing the filth, and what more do you need? Yeah, quite, quite. Uh, so, let's go into the more controversial territory of Jim Carrey's Rydler. It's, it's like a four for me i think like uh, he gets one or two moments here and there that i like but it's just it's so overdone like it's amazing to me that there's supposedly this longer cut of this movie that exists where they cut out all the stuff involving bruce wayne because you could shave a good 15 minutes of riddler out of this movie and you would still have the same movie i think i'm tempted to kind of be within the realm of a three or a four for riddler um mostly because i find him pretty annoying for the most part I will also say I've got a bit of beef with this character because it's the one that really popularizes that comic book movie trope of like, why does the villain become the villain? Because they're a little nerdy bitch who the hero rejected and then they become a villain, which you then see in so many other movies. I mean, you see it in the next fucking Batman <laughs> yeah, movie literally. for a start with Poison Ivy. Literally. Although that's not that's not the hero rejecting it, but it's the same character archetype. But you also see it, it turns up in Iron Man 3 with uh, Aldrich Killian. It turns up with um, 
Wonder Woman 1984. It's got Jamie Foxx uh, and uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Jamie Foxx and Amazing Spider-Man 2. I'm sure there are many other examples that we can um, point to. But... Megamind. Uh... Megamind. <laughs> the movie Megamind. Um, the Incredibles. Yeah, so... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, Incredibles is a good example. That's also but, kind yeah. of so, parodying it, I guess. Yeah, but, it's aping yeah. it, yeah. So, yeah, so there is that. Um, uh, yeah, so I think with all of that, I, I don't... I will say the one scene I do like with uh, Jim Carrey in this movie is where he, as Edward Nigma is kind of... like He's kind of acting like Bruce Wayne because he's trying to sell this new um, this new TV that takes your brain and mind fucks you. Uh, and like, there's a really nice bit of business that he does where he's dressed like Bruce... He has the same suit and the same glasses as well. And like when uh, uh, Val Kilmer takes his glasses off to gesture, he does the same. He mirrors it. Like it's kind of it's a nice little scene of like, and that kind of comedy I wish they did more of, where it's subtly done, and it's kind of like it's the physical comedy of Jim Carrey, but it's like it's serving a character purpose where you, they're showing that like you know Edward is still very much in the shadow of Bruce Wayne, you know. Yeah, and I think um, Kerry is good in that scene as well, where he's sort of, you know, yeah. um, sort of doing his mannerisms and stuff. Yeah, that, that's, that's fine. But overall, the character doesn't really do it for me. Um, his plan is stupid. Um, yes, agreed. He's not really the Riddler. That's kind of the main thing. Um, no, yeah. I, I don't, why is it so hard for, like, filmmakers to get the Riddler right? He's a bloke who just really likes riddles. Like, how do you fuck that up? Well, I think it's just this thing where there is the the definitive Riddler from the '60s show, yeah. And they either they either want to ape it or they want to get away from it. It's kind of the same with the Heath Ledger problem, where it's like they either want to just do exactly that again or they want to get as far away from it as possible and end up shitting out a Jared Leto. Um, anyway, Tommy Lee Jones as Harvey Lee Two Face. I'm gonna go on brand and give him a two. Yeah, I think he could have been great. I think Tommy Lee Jones is good casting for Two Face, but especially in in the, you know the age he was in the nineties. But I think he's a two. The end result is a two, and also the you can't you can't escape the fact that they robbed us of a Billy D. Williams. Two-Face. Yeah, that stings. That really does sting. But yeah. it's also the fact that and it hurts this movie as well because if you started this movie with Billy D. just being Two Face. I think you could get away with it more than what they have here, where it's like, oh yeah, it's Two-Face, you know, don't worry about it. And it's a completely different guy. Whereas, if you had Billy D there, you could at least be like, oh, right, Harvey Dent from the first movie. I wonder how he got to this state, and like you could you could do it that way. But Yeah, exactly. There'd be more stakes that way, because obviously Bruce Wayne would know him, and that kind of thing, and you could play yeah. around with that more, and whatever. Um, yeah, don't like Two-Face yeah. in this movie, it's really stupid. Um, it looks dumb. Um, what do we think then in terms of ratings for this movie? Good, good, but I hate it. Shit, shit, but I like it. It's verging on shit, but I like it. It's more shit, but if it's on on a Sunday afternoon, I might watch it. I think I'm going to give it a begrudging shit, but I like it because there's enough about it that I find entertaining that I'll definitely watch it again. Yeah. In my lifetime, but um, yeah, I can't really justify giving it a good. No, no, no. no. Uh, so. Moving swiftly on to, the, I think the movie we're going to kind of have the least to say about, um, a because it's been talked to death by any other movie podcast. Like if you listen to a bad movie podcast, we're not a bad movie podcast. We're just a movie podcast. But any bad movie podcast will inevitably cover Batman and Robin, 
and most, uh, you know, it's, it's been talked to death. Yeah, I mean, it's universally um, considered one of the worst movies ever made, and I remember going into it for the show, because I hadn't seen it in the longest time. I barely remembered anything, apart from the bit where Chris O'Donnell pulls off his rubber lips. That was stuck in my head for some reason. Um, but I went into it for this Kinky. and watched it, and thought to myself, do you know what? It's Maybe it's not as bad as everyone says it is. Maybe time will sort of you know, be a bit kinder to it. No, it's genuinely that bad. It's fucking awful. Yeah, it's, it's really it's, this bad. is this is a pretty dreadful movie. I mean, as a kid, I loved this movie, um, and you know, as as I became a man, I became aware that it was bad. <laughs> but um, yeah, this movie fucking sucks. It's, Let's yeah. just quickly run down the plot. So, Batman and Robin are now a successful partnership, but there's tension. Uh, because Robin wants to be seen as a man, despite the fact that he's clearly 32. And, and Batman uh, is now wants... George Clooney, but nobody's mentioning that. They're just, you know... Yeah. Um, yes, he is, indeed. Uh, Mr. Freeze is running amok, played by uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he, I guess, is... What is he doing in this movie? He's, like, stealing... Diamonds? Yeah, he wants at the, at the start, at the start. Yeah, because it's the whole. Mr. It's Freeze something to do with you know, right? You know the whole thing. He's got his wife in a tube, and he wants to. He wants to create a cure, and for some reason, diamonds are the answer to this. Don't worry about it. Um, along the way, uh, Uma Thurman as Pamela Isley uh, runs afoul of her mad boss, who is the uh, Doctor Woodrow of the villain from. Uh, from Swamp Thing, which is kind of a, which is kind of a weird pull, but I'm glad they were like, oh, you know, that's that's actually a weird DC thing that they were like, oh yeah, there's that. It's kind of like how in the first movie, just a side note, um, Vicky Vale says that she's been taking photos in the uh, war photos in the Corto Maltese, which is not a real place and only exists in the DC universe. But I enjoy the fact that there are these, even in these early movies where no one gave a shit about comic books, there are the occasional wink to. Uh, to comic book continuity but one of these like movies that. also references Metropolis as well, doesn't it? I can't remember which one it uh, is. Yes. That is in Batman Forever. He says the circus will be halfway to Metropolis That's by now. It, yeah, yeah. And in this movie, he says, this is why Superman works alone. Uh, yes, of course, he does mention Superman by now. Yeah, yeah, this movie has a lot more very overt, not like winking at the audience, more just kind of staring deadpan at the audience. Yeah. Um, so yes, to round off the plot, she gets turned into Poison Ivy. Uh, because her boss is trying to make criminals stronger, question mark. And in the course of um, doing so, creates Bane. Yes, because he takes a scrawny death row inmate and turns him into Bane. Um, not Bane, but just Bane. Yeah, um, the superior live-action version of Bane. Absolutely criminal opinion. Um, <laughs> not even criminal, sex criminal. That's that's how low you are for even suggesting that that could be the case. I mean, I'll stand um, by it. Why not? I just, I don't know. You know, Tom Hardy's Bane doesn't shake his arms in the air like Wallace from Wallace and Gromit and shout Bane, so therefore he is inferior, in my opinion. Yes, but he does crash this plane with no survivors. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, stop, stop it. You know what will happen. I'll just start doing bank You quotes. will, and I can't. Um, I've got no time for it. He does. That's why you always... No, no, I've look. got no time for it, mate. We're running long. Come on. Get through Batman and Robin. Anyway. Look, anyway, through long convoluted means, Poison, poison Ivy tries to drive a wedge between Batman and Robin by seducing both of them with her Poison Ivy pheromones. She eventually teams up with Mr. Freeze, uh, because she wants to give plants the chance to rule the world. 
and she feels that Mr. Freeze will be able to help her with this because he could freeze the entire world, Which, and so that then they could start a new age. Because of that's plants. completely conducive to plant life growing. But okay. Um, and the reason that Mr. Freeze goes along with this is because he's gone mad from what he thinks is the death of Nora, because Poison Ivy, unbeknownst to him, unplugged the machine that keeps Nora alive in her frozen state, um, and blamed it on Batman. Meanwhile, Alfred is dying of cancer AIDS. No, he's dying of the same thing that um, Freeze's wife has, but a lesser, but a lesser form that Mr. Freeze we know has already Less cured. Less deadly from his cancer journals. AIDS, yeah. Yeah, he's can- yeah type one cancer AIDS, not type two. Yeah. Um, anyway, so there's a whole convoluted thing where Batman realizes that Mr. Freeze has already cured type one cancer AIDS by don't worry about it. So, uh, but it leads to the subplot where Alfred, the only emotional subplot in this movie, where Alfred is kind of dying and Bruce is having to deal with that fact. Meanwhile, to come and help Alfred, I guess, in his state, his niece turns up. So actually confirmed Alfred is a member of the Legion of Uncles, this movie does. Um, His niece turns up, who is Alicia Silverstone, slash Barbara, slash... Batgirl. She's not Barbara Gordon. No. I guess she's just Barbara Pennyworth, I suppose. But, um, so that's weird. Because traditionally, as I'm sure the listeners know, the first Batgirl is Barbara Gordon, Lieutenant Gordon's... Oh, sorry, Lieutenant Gordon. He gets promoted. Commissioner Gordon. Uh, his, his daughter. So, Alicia Silverstone, uh, Batgirl, she comes along, isn't really relevant to the plot, has some unconvincing sexual tension with Robin, gets, when it looks like Alfred's about to pop his clogs, uh, she finds that he's secretly made a bat suit for her, and she's like, oh, turns out Alfred is the butler to Batman and Robin. Cool, I guess I'm also a superhero now. Uh, She comes to save Batman and Robin from Poison Ivy, who... They weren't doing too badly against anyway, from what I remember. Um, because oh yeah, because the subplot, so the subplot of Robin lusting after Ivy, and Batman supposedly being jealous, resolves by Robin wearing the famous rubber lips so that Ivy's poison kiss can't kill him. Um, but when she thinks that she's killed him with the poison lips, she's like, "Ha ha ha ha! You stupid bitch! I was always gonna kill you, you little shit bitch!" And then Robin's like, "Ha! Fuck you, dickhead!" And um. There's a big fight involving Mr. Freeze, Ivy, Batman, Robin, and Batwoman. Sorry, Batgirl. Uh, Mr. Freeze kind of freezes Gotham, but then they thaw it out through the positioning of satellites at the end. I don't fucking know. So ridiculous, this movie. And then the movie just fucking ends. Who fucking cares? It's crap. Um, It's crap. Okay, It's actual crap. And it's the thing. With a plot that outlandish, you would assume it'd at least be somewhat entertaining to watch, but this movie is weirdly boring. It's a slog. Yeah, it's weirdly it is a slog. Um, I mean, it's, we we thought the directing in the last movie was kind of laissez-faire. This movie is barely directed. It's, it's flat as a witch's tit, which is incredible when you've got you know Arnold Schwarzenegger dressed like cosplaying as Doctor Manhattan, making ice puns. Well, all puns. Like, every line of dialogue he has in this movie is a pun, and I don't understand why. Yeah, he like he's it's ice to meet you. Let's kick some ice. 
everybody chill. What killed the it's dinosaurs? Just, it's... The Ice Age. Like, the Ice Age. Which is probably my yeah. favourite of all the shit puns. <laughs> I mean, it's the most laboured because it relies on the fact that there is a dinosaur. That's true, in the museum. yeah. Like, he, he, he had to work for yeah. that one. Um, one thing I will point out, just because I've got the Batman and Robin wiki uh, open here on my screen alongside your glorious mug, uh, I will also say the Batman and Robin wiki is more interesting to read than watching this fucking awful movie. Um, that checks out. Yeah, it's, it's actually. I'll just just read the wiki. I'd say listen to this podcast, read the wiki. You'll have a much better time. Um, I've actually got here the whole thing about Barbara and Batgirl. Um, so it says it. here, unlike the comics, this Batgirl is not related to Commissioner Gordon. This decision was because Pat Hingle was thought to be too old to realistically portray her father. Right, sure. Okay. Makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it makes a certain amount of sense, I guess. Could have been his adopted daughter. There could have been stuff, you know. I don't know why they need to go for the laboured thing of... It's Alfred's wayward niece. Who's into drag racing, out- which ultimately amounts Who, to by the way... By, well, it's just to show she's got a dangerous side. Because when she's introduced, she's like a preppy Oxbridge. And yes, they say Oxbridge. Yeah. As if that's a single university. Oxbridge University is where Barbara goes. Which, again, it's the kind of thing where, like... That is sort of a joke. But in a movie this dumb, it's kind of like... Is that on purpose? Or is that, like... Did they just not bother to look it up? Like... Because if that was in the 60s show, I would assume that that was like an actual joke yeah. where they're like playing on the idea of, for any listeners who may be unaware or American, um, the two big universities, what you would call Ivy League in the States here, Oxford and Cambridge, we often refer to the types who go there as Oxbridge types, collectively, as one. But it would be weird to be like, I go to Oxbridge, yeah. that'd be weird. <laughs> you, you would either say Oxford or Cambridge. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think it's a joke, but I don't know. Um, anyway, you talk some more opinions whilst I get up my notes about what I can only describe as the Coolio conspiracy. Please do, because again, that is also more interesting than this movie. Than the movie um, itself. If I have to praise anything about the film, um, I actually think Uma Thurman's performance is treading the line of what this movie is. She actually kind of gives it a little bit of life. and There's parts where she definitely doesn't, don't get me wrong. Like She's not fantastic for that entirely. Well, the, the entire movie. Yeah. Uh, but there's bits that I kind of like her and she's kind of fun. Yeah, I think she's kind of more dialed into the the tone than a lot of the other actors because George Clooney looks bored for most of this yeah, movie. Yeah, he's like comatose. He sleepwalks this entire movie. Uh, he's such a nothing. He's such a nothing in this. Chris like, O'Donnell is I mean, just bad in this movie. He's just... Yeah, I mean, in fairness to the bloke... Yeah, in, fa- in fairness to the bloke... His main outing as Robin, this movie, he has to be bratty at the start when he's being like, I'm in a car, chick chick the car, me, me, me. And then the rest of the movie, he's like enthralled to Ivy and like just raging at Bruce for not being, for not letting him be the big man. It's just like, this is such an annoying take on Robin. <laughs> like, And it's, it's kind of the thing where I get where they're coming from because in the comics, it's kind of traditional that there is tension between Batman and Robin, especially in the kind of post-70s, 80s interpretation of the character where it goes back to the slightly darker tone. Like, Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne have a complicated relationship that is part of their appeal. Um, But in this movie, they reduce that... Because this is the thing. Obviously, Robin's supposed to be like 12, 13 when Batman first adopts him. So the idea is, like, Bruce becomes a father figure to him. But obviously... 
a difficult father figure because he's also a psychotic vigilante you know, who, who trains him to be a child soldier. <laughs> yeah, he likes to jump so, a giant rodent and beat people up. Like, yeah, I don't feel like I think this movie just would allow him to have a child. But this movie kind of feels like too. Yeah, he's a billionaire. That's what you can do. Um, exactly. This, yeah. this this movie kind of feels like two roommates who hate each other. That's that's the vibe I get from these guys. Yeah, like it's not even like Schumacher. He kind of leans into the homoeroticism, but they're not even gay in this movie. They just they just hate each other. It's not even like so like straight, that's one thing you could do with a rock. Hey, um, there's uh, Mark's opinions do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Kino and Fanny. <laughs> many straight many straight couples get along with each other perfectly well, so long as they're under the age of sixty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or simply just engaged, not married. Well, we, the section's getting removed. The point <laughs> is this. Um, I think you could do a decent version of Robin where he is like in his late 20s and Bruce is kind of middle-aged. That could be interesting. It's not the typical thing, but like, I think the way you'd have to do it is... I mean, and especially if you're kind of leaning into this camp of it all... I think the way you do it is they're more they're more like to, to build on what you were just saying. They're more like an old married couple, I think, would be the way to go. Where it's kind of like they have their banter and their bickering, but underneath it all, you know, they're they're solid yeah, as a rock. There is an element of trust between them, you know, they 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 murdered that guy together. Considering yeah. <laughs> considering this movie's called Batman and Robin, they hate each other. Yeah. As I was watching this, I was just kind of thinking like, why do they not just why do they hang out? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Especially because he's an adult. There's no element like he has to stay there because he's a kid. It's like, like he, he could just leave. leave. Like, you know, he's doing? in his thirties. He yeah. shouldn't be freeloading off this man. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I prefer the father-son interpretation of Bruce and yeah and Robin. No, I agree. I agree. But um, that's that's just me. So before we get into character rankings and round this puppy up uh, for the final time, hopefully, um, you may have noticed, Mark. That in the drag racing scene, the aforementioned drag racing scene, um, a certain gentleman uh, from the 90s and from the Gangster's Paradise, a certain gentleman named... He's been spending most of his life in that Gangster's Paradise. (laughs) Um, And even his mama thinks his mind is gone. But we are, of course, talking about Coolio. um, Remember Coolio? Nobody does. No, I'm kidding. Well, if they watched Celebrity Big Brother about ten years ago, oh, he was, wasn't he? Um, yes, and of course, uh, as we alluded to, he was kind of a one-hit wonder with the Gangsters Paradise. Well, he's a one-hit wonder in this country. I don't know if he was bigger in the states. It's, it's hard to yeah, know. Yeah, was it? But um, that's only only Gangsters Paradise. That's all anybody knows about this man. Yeah, and he has been spending most of his life. Gangsters Paradise. Gangsters Paradise. Um, also, Michelle Pfeiffer's in the video for that, so um, I'm not sure what that's about. Oh yeah, because it's, it's part of the, the soundtrack for yeah, some, the the whatever whatever movie that is. Uh, yeah, she's Dangerous Minds, something like that. I think it is yeah. Dangerous Minds. I've never seen I can't it, be bothered but... to look it up. No, I haven't either. Just an interesting Batman connection. But anyway, Coolio was in this movie as the kind of dude who I guess has organised this drag race. I'm not entirely clear. Now there is a rumour that has circulated for years that this cameo was uh, as lead-in for him to play the Scarecrow in the cancelled f- uh, fifth instalment that would have also been directed by Joe Schumacher, which was called uh, Batman Unchained. Now, Schumacher has only ever talked about how he wanted Nicolas Cage for the role of 
Jonathan Crane slash Scarecrow, which I think we can all agree would have been fantastic. 100%. However, this thing about Coolio has existed in the fan community for a while. I'm not entirely sure where it's come from, because even if you go on the Wikipedia now for, like, unrealized Batman projects, you will see in Batman Unchained that it says Joel Schumacher considered Nicolas Cage for the part before, before ultimately settling on rapper Coolio, with no real citation. Now, I did a little bit of digging, and it seems that the source of this rumour is Coolio himself. <laughs> uh, of course it is. <laughs> so, um, I found an excerpt from... Uh, I can't remember where I got this article, because we originally uh, looked this at this great. like four weeks ago, and I didn't write it down. But I'm just going to read you this brief excerpt of, a, of uh, an article on the subject. So... Coolio appeared briefly to oversee a street race featuring Barbara, Alicia Silverstone, a role that seemed a little small and random at the time. But, in a rather hard-to-hear interview that took place at a bar and grill in Texas, so just bear that in mind, uh, Coolio said he only agreed to appear in Batman and Robin because it was to lead to a larger role. And now we're quoting Coolio. The only reason I did that part was because they promised me the villain part in the following Batman, which they didn't do because Joel Schumacher, they fired him. Me and him didn't get along that great anyway. The next Batman, the villain was supposed to be the Scarecrow. So, there you go. Coolio seems to be the source of this rumour. I don't know why he's being interviewed in Texas Bar and Grills. But also, I mean, why would he lie? Why would he lie? Why would he lie? (laughs) So, Mark, that's the Coolio conspiracy. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the deal is there. I mean, Coolio claims, obviously, that he was told he'd be playing Scarecrow in the next movie, but if Schumacher was considering... Nicolas Cage, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I feel like maybe Coolio was just having a cameo in this movie. Was he on the record label? Do you think? That... Oh, almost yeah. certainly. Almost certainly. Um, one and they probably just got him in it for that reason and said, like, yeah, yeah, you could be you could be in the next one. Yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Expecting him to just, like, never call back or something. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, we got sidetracked there with the Coolio conspiracy. Um, We've definitely not talked about this one as much as we have the other ones, but there's one reason for that, and it's because it's fucking shit, and it doesn't really it warrant is. that it much is. discussion. <laughs> so let's conclude. Um, quick character rankings: Clooney, Batman. It's like a two. Like <laughs> it doesn't really do anything. Yeah, he's he's a two. Yeah. I mean, the the only scene I really like of him as Bruce is when you know Alfred's dying. And yeah, have that exchange where he says like, "I love you, old man." That's nice. That's nicely delivered. The rest of the movie, absolute cack. He seems embarrassed to be in the bat suit. Like he, he's not leaning into the the camp as the thing. Like he, he seems like he's he's embarrassed to be there. George Clooney spends this entire movie just daydreaming about the holiday home he's gonna buy with the salary he got for this movie. That's kind yeah, of yeah, quite, like, quite. That's all it is. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's not very Chris- cool. Chris O'Donnell, Robin? One. Yeah, I'm going to give him a 0.5. Yeah, he's just he's annoying in this a movie. A 0.5. Just yeah. really irritating. Just... Not a good performance. I don't buy him as Robin. Well, I didn't buy him as Robin in the last movie, so why should I buy him in this one when he's just being a white yeah. little dickhead? I just, nah, I'm not about it. Um, Agreed. Terrible. Um, terrible. Okay, moving on. Uh, Arnie as Mr. Freeze? Arnie is at least having fun. Um, yeah. But... I don't find his character particularly compelling, especially because Mr. Freeze is actually one of the more in- well-written Batman villains in terms of like the humanity and stuff. Uh, I know that you're a big fan yeah. of Freeze. I like Freeze. They've 
they've yet to, well the 60s version of him and the animated series version of him are great but they've yet to do a, 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 a like a movie version of him that's any good uh, Matt Reeves come on give us freeze in the next movie don't be a pussy um, yeah I've got to, I've got to echo your thoughts for me Arnie's having a good time which raises it above a, a zero it's a two for me yeah um, it's it's about a two three for me it's just it's it's such a misguided performance like it doesn't match everything else that's going on um, yeah and also like no no disrespect to Arnie because we love Arnie on the show you guys know we do but you know after the third or fourth ice pun even he's getting sick of it you could just he puts yeah. less and less effort into his puns after a while and it really shows uh yeah so, sorry guys okay. what do we think of yeah what do we think of Uma Thurman as uh, poison ivy i'm i'm going i don't I, I don't think we need to expand on what we've said no. five for me it's like a five for me yeah she's one of the only real saving graces i think um and i can never remember the actor's name but the guy who plays the doctor who kills her oh yeah yeah he who i mostly know because he's uh he plays clamp in gremlins 2 that's the main thing that i know yeah yeah, yeah. the mouth of madness as well um he's a great actor he's he's fantastic should have been in the movie more yeah he's great i'm gonna give him a a strong tone yeah absolutely his one scene is hilarious he absolutely knows the right tone to go for um yeah i think uma's gonna have to be a five because she's making the best of what she's got as poison ivy also, I think the problem is, as we alluded to in the Phantom episode, weirdly, uh, Joel Schumacher is a very, very gay middle-aged man at this point, and he doesn't know how to make a woman sexy. So what he ends up at here is drag queen, question mark? And I just think it's it doesn't work. I mean, it could be fun in its own way, but the whole thing they're trying to do here is like Batman and Robin are both sort of fighting over her. They're, both, like, they're trying to do the Catwoman thing, where she's like the evil one that maybe there's the redemption and maybe I like that she's bad and blah, blah, blah. But because it's not written as well as that, it just comes across very, like, what do these guys see in her exactly? Like, it's... And it's a shame, because, like, you know, I think Uma Thurman could have really done that role well if it was just written with slightly more nuance and slightly less... Well, let's face it, slightly less camp, you know? I think another Um, thing as well is, like, this movie looks very cheap generally, but her Poison Ivy costume looks like a bad cosplay. Like, it's... It's yeah. terrible. It's really, really terrible. It's, it is shit. Um, um, so with that, let's round this off with Alicia Silverstone as um, Batgirl. Uh, it's like a two. She doesn't really add much of anything to the movie. Um, yeah, she's a two. She doesn't drag it down too much, but then when she is Batgirl, she's really annoying. Because <laughs> yeah. they immediately do the same thing they do with Robin, where it's like, oh, we've got to bicker the whole time. That makes us fun, and it's like because no, that's, that's what shit. families do. Oh fuck right off. Oh, and also uh, when she beats up Poison Ivy at the end, because only a woman can beat up a woman. Yeah, that was is, my um, thoughts watching this. I was just like, ah, yeah, uh, we couldn't really have George Clooney slapping Uma Thurman but, about, could we? But then they have, but then they have, um, but as we know from uh, Batman: The Brave and the Bold, if anyone's seen that cartoon, the Hammers of Justice are unisex. But. Um, <laughs> But uh, the um, that's a great show. If anyone's seen I, that, I've seen bits of that. Um, I've always really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah. But also the thing in that scene where she beats up Poison Ivy, she has this stupid line about like trading on your looks and man, you're not very feminist, bro. Read a book, and it's like, shut up. <laughs> just and then she's just arguing with. <laughs> and, just, and she's just like bickering with Robin the whole time, where he's like, 
how do you know how to do that, little girl? And he's like, fuck off, little boy. And then there's the bit where they like fall off the building, and he's like, I got you. And then he doesn't, and then she catches him, and she's like, no. It's a load of old bullshit, isn't it? It's just a load of old bullshit. It's terrible. I I know a lot of people have some serious nostalgia for this movie, and if you do like this movie, like, that's fine. Like, more my power to you. Enjoy it as much as you want. I personally just found this movie to be a fucking slog to get through. Yeah, it's 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 just not good. It's not even fun in the way that like Batman Forever kind of is, where it's 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 on the right a line of being dumb that you can enjoy it. This to me was just like feeling my brain melt slowly out of my ears. Yeah. Um, I will say we need to go back. We need to take the pin out of Michael Goff that we put in earlier. Uh, I think for his service to this franchise, he's like a fifteen out. Of yeah, 10. absolutely. He's amazing. Like even when he's great in all these movies, went yeah. to shit. He still stuck around and did his best, Alfred, and we have to commend him for that. And he's actually unironically great in this movie, in Batman and Robin. He, I mean, he doesn't have much to do other than die, but he, and then not die, <laughs> but he does. He serves his purpose well. He does the role well. He and he lends it some. Genuine human emotion in amongst all the cod pieces and leather nipples and all the rest of it. Yeah. So that was. So, well, hang on. What are we saying for the rating? Oh. Are we saying Batastic? Okay. Well, Jokerific. We'll redo that. No, 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 no. We won't. We'll keep going because <laughs> let's just finish this. Um, it's gonna be. Is it Batastic? Jokerific. Uh, nipple on bat suit. Alfred. Uh, I'm gonna go for a different one. Uh, I'm gonna go with it's batshit, but not in a good way. Yeah, it's batshit. It's batshit. Bat bat I think going by our classic rating, I think we're both just saying unequivocally. Yeah, shit. it's shit. It's bad. It's so bad. I really did shit, go into this expecting to maybe think, ah, oh, there's gonna be some stuff in this that I can enjoy and maybe think that it's you know not as bad as everyone says it is, but it really is as bad as everybody says it is. Uh, but again, some people love this movie, and if you love it, all my power to you. But it's it's shit. It's really shit. Right. Well, that's been Aiden and Mike versus Batman for kind of the third time that we've recorded it. Hopefully it was coherent and we didn't sound too much like we wanted to kill ourselves. Let us know in the comment. Um, what I will say is, you can find us on YouTube at Kino Inferno. You can find us on Spotify, also at Kino Inferno. You can find us on Twitter at Kino underscore Inferno. That's the important bit. Some other cunt... Yeah. Some other cunt got to Kino Inferno before we did. We are we suing. We're, we're, we're trying to arrange to have them killed. Um, <laughs> the legal Stitcher, advice there is for- shaking his head. <laughs> Stitcher, forget about it. We're not on Stitcher. Don't know what it is. Um, we're on some other pod catchers, I think, just by virtue of being with Podbean. But um, I don't know what they are, and you certainly don't use them. Um, so that's that. Season 2, coming soon. Um, if you're on the Facebook page, we're going to be releasing episode titles soon. Yep. So we'll be starting the promotional hype for that. So we will be teasing um, your nipples with season two soon. Where we finally cleared it by the lawyers. Yes, we don't have a release date yet, but we will soon. Um, obviously, the fact that we've just had to re-record this has set us back a little bit. Just a little bit. But, but yeah, but that's that. It's in the oven. So it's baking get away. ready for that. Next time you hear from us, it will be season two, episode one. Um, so, all that remains to be said is I've been Aiden. And I've been Mark. And I've been the Joker, baby. Woo, I'm crazy. Love that Joker.
I guess you're only familiar with the new Batman movies. Michelle Pfeiffer? Ha. The only true Catwoman is Julie Newmar, Lee Merriweather, or Eartha Kitt. And I didn't need molded plastic to improve my physique. Pure West. And how come Batman doesn't dance anymore? Remember the bat to see? <clears throat> Yo, hey, yeah, yeah. <sighs> hey, nice meeting you. Just keep moving. Don't make eye contact. <laughs>